Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome back to the very first episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, the Loose Leaf Edition. A very proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shang, and as always with me, folks, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. Rob, we are finally here. Can you believe it? No, I cannot believe it. We're, we've been talking about this for a very long time, and you've been promoting this all week. People are very excited. Let's get to it. Would you like to know how long we've been talking about this? Because I've got some funny information. We started the first episode of the Who's Who podcast back in May 2012. Now, for those of you that can count up higher than five, uh, you'd realize that that's six years ago. And if you think about this, Who's Who started in 1985, and then this publication is in 1990. That means it's only been five years of publication, and it's taken us six years to get there. But uh, truthfully, when you do the half years and stuff, we're, we're actually about even. We're, we're about the same pace as DC was in the real world at the time, which I find pretty darn funny. <laughs> it's, it, it is amazing. Again, we've gone in. We won't get into the whole history of the Who's Who show. People know how yes. we try different versions. We recorded three different uh, takes of the first episode. We were originally going to be a backup feature, and which is silly when you think that these shows are like nine hours long or whatever. But let's <laughs> let's 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 do insect trade to get to the book. I, I'm chomping at the bit. Absolutely. Well, folks, for those of you who are new, welcome to the show, and hang on tight, because we're going to have some fun. Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for your trades, hardcovers, and other collector editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, we always pick a book that is somewhat related to the Who's Who issue. Rob, what did you pick this time? Uh, yes, uh, because the Scarecrow is represented in this first mm. issue of Who's Who. I picked a really good Scarecrow story, and that is a book, Tales of the Batman, by Alan Brennert. Everybody knows how much Ooh. I love Alan Brennert, both his work and the man. He's very handsome. Uh, this book features <laughs> features Brave and the Bold, number 197, written by Alan Brennert, which is one of the greatest Scarecrow stories ever done. It also features Brave and the Bold's 178, 181, 182, Detective 500, Batman Holy Terror, plus a bunch of other DC stories that Alan Brennert wrote. Everyone knows how much I love Alan. I interviewed him for, for this very network way back years ago. Uh, the guy is just fantastic. Every, literally every story he wrote for DC is superb. So you can get this all collected in one book with the beautiful Jim Aparo cover. And you see Scarecrow right there. 200 pages, $29.99. It's like trade price, $17.39. 42% off. You will not be disappointed. This is a great book. Awesome. Well, I picked one, a uh, little oddball one. I picked Doom Patrol, tree paperback of uh, book one. And this is the Grant Morrison era. I picked this specifically because the Brotherhood of Dada are in this issue. And when we get to their entry, I'll talk a little bit more about why they're so important to me specifically. But this trade paperback, this thing is massive, guys. This is 424 pages. This is the, oh, geez, how many issues is it? This is issues 19 through 34. So it's the beginning of Grant Morrison's run of Doom Patrol, which if you haven't run, read is absolutely amazing and totally trippy and wild and will make you think differently about comics. It's, I love it. Anyway, written by Grant Morrison, art by Richard Case and John Nyberg, and covered by Brian Ballin, which is absolutely gorgeous, of course. And um, 
This thing normally retails for $29.99, but you can get it for 42% off on in-stock trades right now, which is only $17.39. That is an absolute steal. These comics are amazing. The Brotherhood of Dada is close to my heart. Again, talk more about it later, but you got to pick this up if you haven't read it. So, uh, Doom Patrol, Trade Paperback, Volume 1. And the great, was it uh, Alan Brennard's Batman? Is that what it was called? Tales of the Batman by Alan Brennard. There we go. Go out to InStockTrades.com and pick these up, folks, and tell them the Fire and Water Podcast Network sent you. All right. Woof. So, uh, just for those of you who aren't familiar with the Loose Leaf Editions, just a little bit of history on them. <laughs> what are you laughing about? Why are you laughing Let's already? talk about the 90 other books that were on sale at the same time. So, no, Sad no, no, Sack, no, no, number 73, and Sad no, Sack I'm not Funnies, do that. number 32. Just, just, just shut up. Oh, my gosh. We've been apart for like a year and a half, and it's like this already. Unbelievable. Okay. Anyway, yes, when we say loose leaf, things are legitimately sheets of paper that are loose leaf. They have holes punched in them. You can put them in binders. Their size is much bigger than a standard comic book. I, I measured mine. It's 10 um, and three quarters inches by eight and a quarter. It's basically about the size of a sheet of paper. Okay. And uh, now this miniseries was a 16 issue miniseries that started in. 1990. Specifically, uh, this issue one is cover dated August 1990, but it was on the shelves on June 26th, 1990. Thanks, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, for that information. And one of the cool things about it was it came shrink-wrapped. So unlike the other Who's Who comics, where you pick it up off the shelf and you flip through it and you're like, oh, look, you know, Dave Stevens did Catwoman. That's pretty cool. You don't know what's inside, other than the cover and a couple images on the back. You had no idea. So when you when you would buy it, you'd, just, you'd be dying. You'd rip the cellophane right off in the car because you had to flip through just to find out who drew your favorite character in there. I love that every single month. That was was so cool. The curiosity just got to me. Absolutely loved it. Um, and also, it wasn't an A to Z listing. Within the issue, like for example, today it's going to go Amanda Waller to Wotan. So that pretty much covers the whole thing, Gambit, right? You only need one issue. So, but so <laughs> rather than having to do this, where in the previous series they ran you know A to Z, and when Booster Gold was introduced and they were already on letter F, they're like, whoops, we can't put Booster Gold in now. This way, by just doing a smattering of characters, they can slip in who they want. It can be a featured issue, like this is a Superman featured issue, all kinds of different things along those lines. So it's a lot of, a lot of fun. Going to start going, getting into it. We're not going to get into the entries just yet because there's a lot to talk about. Rob, why don't we start off by talking about the cover? So the, t- the title's changed. It's no longer Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. It's no longer Who's Who, Update 87. It's now Who's Who in the DC Universe, and it will retain that name pretty much from then on. That is what Who's Who is referred to as. And the cover um, is it's, it's like a cardstock, a heavier sort of material there that holds it together. And uh, get the new logo, which I absolutely love. I, I know, Rob, the, the classic Who's Who logo is something that is beloved to your heart, but I find this logo so much cleaner and prettier. I, what do you think of the logo? I mean, it's it's a, it's a variation of the other one. I do miss the, the classic, classic one, but that one is a little busy, and that one is more... Uh, referring to DC's past, and as we'll soon see, this uh, iteration of Huzu was all about DC's present and future. So it makes sense that they would maybe get rid of the checkerboard and uh, the go-go checks and all that stuff and, and uh, sort of point forward as opposed to looking back. Yeah, I agree. Now, one of the sad things for me with the covers, though, is we have lost having an original cover. We used to get the old Who's Who. We get a great jam shot of all the characters inside. I do miss that. I wish they hadn't done away with it. But you do get a very iconic, nice. They basically pick the most iconic character from the issue or who the issue is themed about, and that's who gets the cover. In this case, it is Superman. We're not going to talk in depth about it because when we get to the Superman entry, we'll talk about it because it's the exactly same piece of art. Uh, but you know, if you're doing number one of a new series from DC Comics and it's about all the characters, Superman makes this you know makes perfect sense to be the first character. Absolutely. Now, once you flip inside, once you've, you've, you've peeled off the cellophane and you've peeled off the little gummy stuff that held the things together, you get into the inside, and there's some stuff on the inside covers I want to talk about real quick. 
There's an intro page here by the new editor, Michael Urie. And um, so real quick, run it down. Uh, editor, Michael Urie. Copywriter, Arlene Lowe. Consulting editor, Robert Greenberger. Design, Keith or Kez Wilson. And cover artist, in this case, was Jerry Ordway. Um, some of the other differences here, when you get inside, the old who's who was 32 pages, right? And so you got 32 different entries for the most part. Sometimes you get a double page or the two people in one, whatever. But this is actually 48 pages. The, con the, the book itself is actually larger but there's less entries because each entry gets a front and a back. So it's actually 24 entries per issue. So you get less entries but more pages, which is a little kind of weird with math, but it's that newfangled math. you got to take your shoes off to figure it all out. Um, for those kids who were cool, they went out and bought the binders. We'll talk more about those in a future episode. Hey, hey, I've still got my binders. Thank you very much. Um, there was a George Perez. I hate you so much. There was a George how, Perez binder. How did the cool kids ever have time to buy the binders when they were drowning in tail? I'm just telling you, Michael Urey even wrote in the intro that these new binders were the must-have item of the 1990s and a great back-to-school gift, okay? Because remember, it's June when this came out, so you don't, are you going to argue with Michael Urey? Hmm? Hmm? I don't think so. I'm going to say Michael Urey was painting a target on the back of his readership. <laughs> Man, if I was still in high school and this thing came out, I would have pulled this right out of my, you know, my backpack and been like, rockin'! But anyway, we'll see if Michael <laughs> Bailey did that. Anyway, so I'm and, um, that picture of you from high school. But he said, "Hey, I had no pride." Okay. Anyway, <laughs> we don't need to go down that path. So it, the way this happens, and it's all in the back cover here. Michael Urey explains this. Basically, in August 1989, he was assigned to do a relaunch of the Who's Who, and he consulted with some of the you know well-known folks from DC: Mike Carlin, Bob Greenberger, Mark Wade. All of them suggested doing a loose-leaf format. And so uh, Michael Urey and Kez Wilson sort of like lock themselves away and try to figure out, you know, what would that mean? What would it look like? How would you even do that? Because no one had ever done a loose leaf, you know, comic book sort of thing before. And him and Kiss Wilson, they, they, they were sort of inspired by the whole idea of trading cards, which is you have a front image and on the back you have the stats, you know? And, and trading cards were huge in the 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s, um, late 80s, early 90s. So that was sort of the inspiration was the whole trading card idea. And then, uh, then they went to Bob Rosakis and Angela Messina. Rosakis, Bob Rosakis. What's Thank the matter you. with you? Uh, that I'm trying to get all this out and get in a hurry because you gave me a deadline. Uh, <laughs> and Angela Messina, who worked for Ronald's Printing, and basically they made recommendations on how to publish this loose leaf thing again because no one had ever done it. No one knew, even knew how. So these people were invaluable in giving them suggestions. And there's a million names Michael name checks is in this thing, and he absolutely should. And give credit to everyone that helped. I just wanted to point out those folks to you. Uh, oh, oh, one more, Chantel. D. Al Nunes is the person who suggested the created by bylines, which we'll get to in just a bit, which is sort of new for this. And one of the things he explains, as Rob sort of hinted at, the real focus of this who's who is to focus on active characters, saving like the golden age characters, the historical obscure characters, really for future editions. They didn't want to touch on it. They wanted this to be what the DC universe looks like right now, which really is sort of a post-crisis mentality anyway, so it makes sense. Uh, Rob can bemoan that and piss him on all he wants, but really it made for a great book. I am going to. <laughs> and then, you know, it, it was done up like a, the fun thing is it was done up like a who's who entry. So it had like, you know, all the vital statistics and it had the history. And under powers and weapons, it does say no special physical or mar uh, martial arts training, but rolled up, it makes one heck of a fly swatter, which I absolutely loved. All right. A uh, couple more notes, and I promise we're going to get to the first entry, folks. Some <sighs> other things that are different. Shut up. Some other things that are different is when you flip it open, you get your entry, right? And on the backside is all the stats. They have these cool colored borders. Now, we saw some of this in the Who's Who and the Legion of Superheroes that was also designed by Kez Wilson, which is kind of where it started. But there are seven different categories for each of these characters, and that's important. Uh, there was red borders, which represented hero. Black borders, which represented villains. Blue, which represented supporting cast. Purple, which represented supernatural. Orange was aliens. 
Green was geography, and yellow was technology. And then eventually they would introduce another category, uh, not in this issue, but a few issues down the line, which was gray, which represented events, So, which was pretty cool. And i got to tell you, Rob, I, I used to do the, the Mayfair role-playing game, and me and my friends, we would play, and we made so many characters, we made our own who's who, where it was just the stats printed up so everyone could see a copy. We actually used this border scheme. We called it who's who in, in, our, in our little universe, and we had blue borders for supporting characters and red for heroes red for, and black for villains. It was cool. We loved it. Oh, it just, it's such a fun aesthetic, and you can really – I mean, as we're going to get to in the feedback of this episode, people really got into this, man. They loved the different oh, yeah. categories. Oh, yeah. And that's a compliment. That is, you, you're being all snooty because you think you're above us. But those of us who <laughs> lived and breathed this stuff, this is awesome, man. This I is do. Like totally I, I cool. do. I do think that. <laughs> I know you do. I hate you for it, too. All right. Well, I think there's nothing to it but to get into the very first entry oh, of is, Who's Is who. it all right if I actually say something in the show before we start? Or are you no just really going to do a half-hour monologue and, you're, you know, whatever? You're just going to make us all feel bad. And, like, you're going to be like the bully in school picks on us. Go ahead. I am absolutely. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, it's funny. When I when I looked up uh, this first issue because I have a distinct memory of when I was at the Joe Kubert School. By the way, I was at the Joe Kubert School. Uh, every Friday after school, we would get pile in a car. Me, Tom Zoller, our buddy Sean Tiffany, a couple other people would pile in a car and drive over to the comic shop and get the comics for that week because this was back when comics came out on Fridays, not Wednesdays. And um, I distinctly remember buying this first issue of Who's Who off the stands. Like being, really? oh my God, oh, the Who, the new thing. Because I loved Who's Who. I loved, I bought every iteration of Who's Who. I bought Who's Who in Star Trek. I bought Who's Who in the Legion. I bought every Who's Who that came out because I loved it so much. So I was like, oh, what? And then I picked it up and I was like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> and the funny thing is, when I looked it up on Mike's Amazing World, like you just did, and you mentioned that it came out in June, which means yes. I could not have done that because we weren't in school in June. So oh. I am completely flummoxed at how my memory – I must have bought another issue of Who's Who, like three or four by the time it probably came out in September, which is when we were back at school. But Maybe I really, issue 11? Yeah, something. I mean I, <laughs> I distinctly remember I, – I said I have a memory of buying the first one on one of those trips, and yet I could not have done it because I would have been home for the summer by then. So that's very confusing to me. Well, part, part, of, the, part of what might be that is, is it, it's hard to tell what issue is the first issue simply because every issue is like an A to Z. Well, but, but, it's I, not like, but, I reme- but I'm saying what I remember is I didn't read press stuff. I wasn't like familiar. So I the first time I knew that this was the new format was when I picked the first one up off the stands. Right. So that's what I'm saying is like I have that memory of being like, what is this? And I remember being with like the guys, but I couldn't have been. I could not have been. So anyway, that's very confusing. And I do want to say, just before we get started, I really hope that uh, copy editor Arlene Lowe is up to the task because she has big <laughs> shoes to fill, and those are the <laughs> those are the size seven slingbacks of Brenda Pope. So there is a lot to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for that. No doubt about it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do this. All right. Very first entry in the book. Now, folks, it's, we've gotten a lot of emails over the last several years saying, well, how are you going to cover the loose leaves? We're doing it in issue by order and in the way it's printed on the cover. So we're doing the very first entry, Amanda Waller, right here, right now. So some of the differences from the old who's who versus this one. Again, on the front, you get a full-size page of art, all right? And I'll talk more about that in a minute. On the back side, one of the interesting things is you get a little headshot 
of the character, uh, so you, which is a different – all this is original art. They don't reprint any art. So you get a little headshot. You get all your vital stats like normal. You get your history, your powers, your weapons, all that jazz. And then the bottom, you get a series of panels, at least with the Amanda Waller one. It's three individual panels. Sometimes it's one long panel. Sometimes it's a two panel and a one panel. It's, either way, it's some design along those lines. But it's, it's all representative of what's going on in that character's origin, which is pretty cool. So let's talk about Amanda Waller on the front. So art by Luke McDonald and uh, – got to flip it over now – Jeff Isherwood. And the, the text, we know who writes the text now, too, is Bob Greenberger. So, Rob, Rob you want to describe the art for us here? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a big shot. Again, no surprint. You know, it's it's a, it's and almost all these images will be like in moment images. Uh, that's a bad way to put it. Like, it's not a it's not um, abstract. You know, it's like a situation of the characters in action as opposed to the old who's who listings, which were more kind of poster like or whatever. This has got Amanda. She's fl- flinging up the keys, presumably to Bell Rev Prison, uh, in her hand, and in the background we see some members of the Suicide Squad, Deadshot, Bronze Tiger, and Captain Boomerang. Uh, she's wearing men's clothes for some reason. I don't fully understand that. Um, because from what I remember in Suicide Squad, she dressed like a woman. You know, well, she's got the collar popped up. I mean, that's kind of female. Like, is, you know. is it really? Um, yeah. I, I think you could tell that how different like this style of who's going to be textually, uh, besides obviously the visuals are obvious, right from the first sentence of this listing, which is the first sentence of the new who's who. And it's Amanda Waller's story is not a happy one. Filled with great yeah. tension, sacrifice, betrayal, death, and most recently, renewal. The old Who's Who listings were not editorialized like that. So this, this one has a lot more of a perspective uh, on it then. And you'll, it'll continue throughout the whole series, mainly because I said I think it's – they're trying to – I think they're trying to get a slightly different audience with, with this iteration of Who's Who. So you can tell right from the beginning we're, we're doing something a little different here. Well, I love that because you know we, we talk about Who's Who and a lot of times uh, some of the entries will be – it give you a feel for the character. Like that, those two sentences right there make you get a sense for what's going to happen here. You get a sense for the character, their life. Where sometimes it's just like reading an encyclopedia. This happened to this character, and this happened to this character. And you don't really understand who the character is, or what they're about, or their personality. This one, I feel like at least at least this Bob Greenberger entry that kicks us off is it really gives you a sense for who she is. Um, a couple comments on the art. Luke McDonald. I have a. You and I have had a, a, a often on again love affair with Luke McDonald. We love him on Suicide Squad. We don't always love him on the Who's Who entries. When he inks himself, he looks great. When he has other inkers, not always. This one's a little disappointing to me. Um, I feel like, and I'm going to say this on a, a several entries we go through. I feel like maybe they hadn't figured out the new format yet. Like they hadn't figured out how big it was going to be, how much space they had, and about filling the background and stuff like that. Because in this, it's just one big blue background. It's like a lot of wasted space. And when we get to some of the other entries, you'll see like people really figured out how to use the page uh, expertly. And I feel like maybe this is just some of the growing pains of this entry. And unfortunately, being the very first one in the book, it's like, oh, okay. Um, but it is one of the – I guess since it was shrink-wrapped, it's not like someone saw it and then decided not to buy the comic. So I guess if they <laughs> saw it, they'd already bought it. <laughs> so all right, give you a little bit of history on Amanda Waller. We've already covered her in previous iterations of the show, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But um, basically she grew up in Chicago. She raised five children. So had some horrible tragedies happen to her family uh, when the last of her survived children graduated school she then told them look kids you're on your own it is now time for amanda me for me for me to begin my life over so she worked in politics politics as an aide and she was helping out poor neighborhoods and stuff and during all this she uncovered a defunct um organization called task force x in argent so she went to the president got permission to relaunch it uh and she relaunched it obviously we all know suicide squad with superhero criminals and more recently at this point uh, in this time at least this point in the story where it's written she had gotten a lot of trouble uh, for sort of crossing the line with espionage and she spent a year in prison 
and now she's currently reorganizing the squad. Now, I, I will give you some perspective on where we were in the DC Universe at this point, as Rob tried to make fun of me at the beginning. Uh, at this point, Suicide Squad was on issue 43, which is the Phoenix Gambit, which is where she w did go to prison. Uh, so, and, and one of the things I want to say about Amanda Waller is that, you know, she is probably, I hesitate to say the most, but one of the most endearing post-crisis characters. Um, uh, the, the endearing? I don't know if that's the right word. Did you enduring. mean enduring or endearing? Enduring, yeah, endearing. endearing. All right. what, not endearing, no. I'm like, really? Endearing? <laughs> really? Okay. One of the most enduring post-crisis creations. Because, I mean, a lot of them got Maxwell Lord's another good one, but she, I mean, she's a movie star now. So, a lot to be said for her, her uh, creation. Um, last thing before I turn back over to Rob, the art on the bottom has her, uh, the three little panels I mentioned, has her chewing out Deadshot, has her reading to one of her children when she was younger, and it has a shot of her in prison. So, what you think? Well, it's it's fine. It's fine. Uh, we talked about Luke McDonald many times before. I actually do like his work. I don't like his work on Justice League. I think he's good on Suicide Squad. I think if you don't know this character, you get a sense of her toughness because you have two of the biggest badasses of the DCU and Captain Boomerang standing there in the background, like, not attacking her. Like, she's standing there with her hand on her hip, flinging the... Like, she's got a real not a care in the world, and yet Deadshot and Bronze Tiger are just sort of like, uh, okay... So if you don't know who she is, you, you get a sense just from this image. It's a shame that the logo is so boring. It's just a typeface. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't want to complain right in the beginning, but like, I think if, if you're going to do the very first image of who's who, I don't know if this is the one you lead off with, but I also know that they were kind of like shuffling things around, you know? Yeah. So it, they, it wasn't even entirely like up to them, but maybe um, they could have started with another A character, uh, you know, Aquaman or something like that, but who, <laughs> who might have judged? Well, the next one, I think they like the, as I said, they're, they're sort of still figuring out the format, and different artists and writers were figuring it out. And I think the next one's a lot more on point with where we want to go. Before we leave Amanda Waller, I do want to say uh, she, her border is blue for supporting cast. And for more on Amanda Waller, you should check out the Task Force X podcast with our buddy Aaron Headmoss. And coming up soon, the JLU cast with our buddy Chris and Cindy Franklin, because they will eventually get to those issues, our episodes with the Suicide Squad. All right. Next entry. Amethyst, And if you look on the back, it says Princess of Gemworld. Um, this is a fantastic art piece on the cover here. Art by Jill Thompson and P. Craig Russell. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, Amethyst is sitting on sort of a, not a throne, but she's sitting on a, 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 an ornate chair with a pillow. She's got some magic going on uh, out of her hands above her. She's wearing a purple bodysuit with some jewelry, uh, long flowing blonde hair, crystals growing out of the ground. There's a castle behind her with faces. There's a great Amethyst logo. I think this is a much better use of the format, uh, and this would have been a great one to kick the whole thing off. What do you think of the art? Yeah, I think it's a great piece. I, Jill Thompson's a superb artist. Everybody already knows that. Scary Godmother and the like. Uh, the, by using her, uh, Miss Thompson, who was not doing a lot of DC work at this moment, she would she would later on do a lot of work for DC. But at the at the moment, I think here she's still pretty new. I think that's one of the things. Um, it's continuing the tr tradition of the classic Who's Who, and one of the things I liked the most about it was they got people you didn't traditionally see in the pages of DC Comics to do the listings, and that's, that's yep. one of the things I like about it. Jill Thompson's a great, and I think she's a good choice for. Uh, Amethyst, and of course they bring in a ringer as the anchor, Pig Craig Russell, one of the greatest people ever to do it. So, um, no, I think it's a nice piece. I, I will mention this was the first hiccup I have with the whole notion of the color coding. Because oh. I supernatural, like, okay. I, so she's purple. Shouldn't she, right, right. Shouldn't she just be a hero? Like, I don't know. I don't get super. I, I know that Alan Moore made a big deal about, you know, making the supernatural part of the DCU like a thing. 
like they all hung out together, Zatanna and John Constantine and Dr. Fade. And, and, and I like all that stuff, but there's something about like making them not heroes. If you're going to have them, if you're going to have a hero category, to me, it's like Amethyst, Dr. Fate, they should be superheroes. I, there's just something about not making them that, that rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I could see that. Um, now, in her case specifically, I would say there are certain characters, though, that really fall more in a fantasy, like, uh, fantasy opera or, or supernatural category than heroes. I mean, she's not out there fighting crime. She's not catching criminals on wow, Earth. But the only time she's being a hero is in her realm. So I would say yes. someone like... I would say like someone like her, someone like uh, Arion, you know, Lord of Atlantis. Those kind of characters probably could be, you know, be fine as just as that, just as uh, supernatural. But then you get to someone like Spectre or Doctor Fate. You're right; they should have a hero label. So either we way, do, we do see her fighting Dark Opal, who was one of the great listings in the classic Who's Who, but the yes. one by Ernie Cologne. We we mooned all over that for like ten minutes, and glad to see he's he's. We see him a tiny little picture here. Yeah, that, those are the pictures in the back. As, as Rob described, the Dark Opal one. There was one of her floating in space, and there's one of her as a little girl, uh, as Emmy Winston, flying into her bedroom from the Gem World, which is part of her shtick. Now, uh, to, to speak specifically to Jill Thompson, you mentioned she was new. She actually had just started a Wonder Woman when this came out. So you're right. She was just on the cusp of, of being there at DC. Now, one of the things that's interesting here uh, – now, first of all, Peter Sanderson wrote the entry. But one of the things that's new here on the back underneath, it says Amethyst, Princess of the Gem World, created by yes. Dan Mishkin, Gary Conan, Erling. Ernie Cologne. How cool is that? Rob, you got a little info on that? Yeah, I was curious about that because there's no creator listing for Amanda Waller, and I was like, well, shame. What, what's that about? And so we wrote to Michael Yuri and asked him, what's the deal? Michael, I put a big hotlight in front of him and demanded to know. And, uh, and, and I had already sort of guessed, is it that, you know, certain creators had deals, you know, sort of legal deals with DC, and that's why some are credited and some are not? And he said that, yes, that, that is exactly what happened, that his original intention was to give creator credits where they could discern them uh, and give it to virtually everybody. But Paul Levitz apparently kind of put the kibosh on that and said that for legal reasons, they could only give creator credits to those creators that they had specific legal, specific legal arrangements with. So that's why you don't see Amanda Waller or some of the later characters, but you do see one for Amethyst. So obviously they have a deal with Michigan, Cone, and Cologne, which is good. They deserve it. I mean, they created this character. And Amethyst was at a brief point in the 80s considered for like a merchandising push. So there was some, some a little bit of heat on her. And so maybe uh, that made sure that maybe Mr. Mishkin and Cohen made sure to, you know, get a piece of the pie as they would deserve it. So, uh, so I'm glad to see that because uh, it's great to see creator credits. I think they, they belong there at least at the very least for the original version of these characters. It's nice to see those names. If you uh, just to plug something, if you want to learn more about Amethyst and that specifically the creator credit and the deal that almost went through, uh, over on the Once Upon a Geek blog, I did an interview with Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. We talked for like two hours about Blue Devil and Amethyst. It's not the greatest audio quality. It was the first thing I ever did audio-wise, but we talked for like two hours and they talked all about how there was an action figure line planned and I mean they got advances, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, now a little bit of history on Amethyst. Um, We've covered her a few times also, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on her. But there are a lot of retcons that go on in her history. She, she was created by Dan and Gary a certain way and then 
later writers came in and retconned quite a bit. So basically, uh, there's this other dimension called Gemworld. And Amethyst's father there was the lord uh, of, Gem- of Gemworld. He was also happened to be a lord of order. And therefore, she was a lord of order when she was born. And to avoid being killed by Dark Opal, who was a lord of chaos, she was spirited away to our world as an infant. And she never knew her true heritage until she was age 13. So she, re- she grew up as Amy Winston on Earth in just like a normal life. And at that point, when she was 13, she was brought back to Gemworld. And when she would be in Gemworld, she would actually be 20 years old because there was some difference in time and space. So when she'd be 20 in Gemworld, 13 on Earth when she'd go back and forth. Anyway, they, there was a, a civil war of sorts, and she eventually became the princess on the throne and defeated Dark Opal. It was great. And uh, later stories had her battling Mordru, who would eventually go on to be from Legion of Superheroes, or actually, this is a retcon for Mordru as well. Lots of adventures. Anyway, in, in my opinion, I've always felt like the character really worked best in the core concept. The original story where she's a 13-year-old girl on Earth who would go to this magical fairyland and be 20 years old and fight, you know, gem-related people. It was a great, fun story. Uh, for uh, for boys, girls, everyone, and I, I just feel like uh, if they could get back to the original essence of the character, they might have something still there. It's a shame we never got that Hanna Barbera cartoon that they were going to do. That would have been what ha- interesting. Shira, it's all Shira's fault. It's all Shira. That's why. Yeah, yeah. Shira came out and boom, it was over. Yeah. So um, at this point in history, and again, this is 1990, she had had a miniseries, uh, a four-issue miniseries, and you know, she'd had an original miniseries, an ongoing series, and then in 1987, she had a uh, another four-issue miniseries in 87 by Esteban Moroto. So at this point, she really wasn't anywhere. So this does sort of make you go, why is she in issue number one if she's not a current piece of the DC Universe? We haven't really seen her in three years, but I guess maybe they had plans they were trying to keep her in the public consciousness. So, All right, up next is one of my favorites, Blue Beetle's Bug. Woo! All right. And this one is labeled yellow for technology, folks. Art on the cover is by Grant Meum and Orange Star, and it is depicts the bug floating above New York City. It's got a bumper sticker. In fact, it says, I love New York, and swinging underneath it is Blue Beetle. And if you don't know the bug, it's, it's, it looks like a giant big beetle. It's, it's massive. It's, just, it's an airship, and a Blue Beetle rides to fly it around, uh, flies around it. And it, the, the real highlight of this entry is the text, all right? So it, this is another way uh, that they're trying to show us that we're going to have some fun here. It's not always going to be stiff. <laughs> that opening line, yeah. <laughs> what could be more touching than a man and his bug? And it goes on, like, at one point here, I'll read this bit because it just cracks me up. The bug's chief weapon is its magno beam that releases magnetic impulse to disrupt foes and electrical charge from the hulls. Uh, it's two chief weapons are the magno beams and electric charges, blah, blah, blah. Because goes on. Uh, it's three chief weapons. It's four chief weapons. Uh, can we just start again? Which is hilarious. It, Kevin Dooley wrote this, by the way. He was one of the editors on the Justice League books at the time. It is a real riot. It still tells you everything you need, but in a really funny way. Um, they talk about the chair. They it's like, Blue Beetle's chair was on a track so he could slide around inside the bug. I always thought that looked really cool in the comics. Uh, he's got, he talks about things like he's got a VCR that's all messed up because he's been playing these cheerleader skin flicks too many times. And uh, he has controls in his gloves, but he stopped using that because every time he punched somebody, it would activate something on the ship. Just really funny stuff. You get to see Bo- um, Booster in the back. So in this one, you don't get a headshot. You just get one big, large image on the bottom of the bug with Beetle and Booster, of course, best friends on there. And I, I absolutely love this one. It's a real hoot. Okay. All right. Okay, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> no, it's for fine. more, informa- it's for more information yeah. on Blue Beetle's bug, you can check out the Court Industries blog, the <laughs> Beetlemania podcast, or the JLI, Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, available here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Yes. And at this point in history, uh, for Blue Beetle, he, they were still in the Giffen DiMatteis run of the Justice League. In fact, they're on just, uh, JLA number 41. They had just finished that giant, massive Despero story. So, good stuff. Up next, this is the one I was talking about earlier, folks, the Brotherhood of Dada. Oh, I love this. Art by Richard Case and Mark McKenna. And you've got the, the, the five characters there. You've got Mr. Nobody, who basically is 
like a two-dimensional silhouette Picasso painting is basically what he is. Uh, then you've got the Quiz, who's this uh, this woman who you can't even tell. It's, it looks androgynous, but in this giant uh, green bodysuit uh, with red question marks and all these tubes and masks on it. You've got another girl who's in like a bodice and some striped pants with giant kicker boots, and she's asleep. you got another guy who's got uh, this weird, crazy, just nutsy cloak and a big top hat and a big toothy grin and this creepy mist in the background. And specifically what you're looking at here is uh, Mr. Nobody, Sleepwalk, Frenzy, Fog, and the Quiz. Um, what do you think of the cover here, Rob? The image, you mean, not the cover. The image, uh, yes, I cover, but yeah. I, I remember back again, back at the Cubit School, I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but this is this was series was out during those years, so it's going to come up a lot. Uh, there was a, one of my classmates thought that the Grant Morrison, Richard Case era of Doom Patrol was like the greatest achievement in the history of comics. And I remember reading, because I always liked the Doom Patrol, and I read the, the, the you know, older version, and I read the Copperberg version, and I remember reading, like, half an issue of the Grant Mars, I was like, yeah, okay, thanks. And I put it down, and that was the oh end of Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this, this never, I just could not make heads or tails of this. And so, this is the kind of thing where I look at this image, and I go, yeah, all right, what's next? Oh, look, Cain and Abel, you know? <laughs> was, really? Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. I mean, okay, art, well, I mean artwork-wise, it's fine. I don't have anything against Richard Case, but it's to me, it's just trying so hard to be weird that I just, I just roll my eyes and go, "All right, thank you," you know. So, okay. <laughs> well, this came along just at the right time for me. Uh, would have been about 1989. I was in high school. I'd been reading superhero comics. I was just starting to dip my toe into like, what's what's a more mature comic? And the very first. Um, mature Doom Patrol comic I bought was Doom Patrol number 26, which was the very first appearance of the Brotherhood of Dada. And the whole issue's about them. And it changed, I mean, I, I say it changed my life. It's really kind of exaggerating, but it changed the way I read comics. I became a diehard fan of Doom Patrol at that point, and every other uh, mature book that DC was publishing to the point when Vertigo came out, I was buying every Vertigo book, and I was barely buying any regular superhero comics for a couple years. I mean, that's how in embedded I got in this, and it all came from uh, Doom Patrol number 26. In fact, I had that cover scanned at like Kinko's and blown up to almost poster size, and I had it on my wall. I've got I've got Doom Patrol number 26 signed by Doom, uh, Grant Morrison when I met him. I mean, it's it's good stuff, man. I love it. It really it really matters to me. So screw you. Anyway, um, wow. I'm sorry <laughs> I, I have a contrary opinion. <laughs> I even went so far as uh, I was in art because it was again my senior year. I did a whole project on Dadaism because of wow. this group. I mean. It, Seriously, I was really into it. So, all right. Uh, so, here's the gist of it is uh, the art, I mean, the story is written by Mark Wade here. And there's a scientist who wanted to join the Brotherhood of Evil. And it really didn't go well for him. In fact, he ends up on the run from then, event, uh, on the run from them, eventually ends up in South America. And he fell in with this former Nazi war criminal because, you know, that's what happens to you. And they did this thing called the White Room Technique where they locked this guy in a room. And complete sensory deprivation, injected him all kinds of drugs and stuff too. And all he can see is infinite white space, and it drove him completely mad. Combine that with those chemicals that are in him, he turns into, again, this like two-dimensional Picasso painting, basically is what he is, all black um, silhouette. And he, he becomes Mr. Nobody. And he goes around and collects other weird characters to help him in his crusade. Sleepwalk is the girl I told you about is asleep. She has super strength, but only when she's asleep. Fren frenzy, but she can sleepwalk. So she anyway. And then there's frenzy, who is this guy who could do this like a whirling cyclone. Then there's fog, who's a literal fog. Fog. It's a psychedelic cloud which absorbs bodies and minds. Then there's the quiz, who is the greatest. The quiz is uh, it's a woman, and she has every single superpower you haven't thought of. 
So, like, the way to battle her is you start yelling, like, heat vision, flying, super strength, and you name these things off, and she suddenly can't do those things anymore. But she can do any other power she can think of. So it's it's totally – it's very Grant Morrison, very Grant Morrison. But, um, you know, one of their big story was the painting that ate Paris, I mean, that kind of stuff. So definitely pick up that Doom Patrol trade paperback, guys. It is so good. Or get it from your library if you're cheap. But you'll love it, I'm telling you. <laughs> Doom Patrol at this point was on issue number 35. And if you, uh, and, and by the way, there's headshots of Mr. Nobody, Sleepwalk, Frenzy, Fog, and the Quiz. And on the bottom, they show a, a picture of all those characters fighting the Doom Patrol, which is great. You can see the Quiz has created a giant bottle to put Rebus in there because Rebus hasn't said, create a giant bottle out of thin air. <laughs> Um, anyway, you want more, you can check out the Waiting for Doom podcast with our friends or even uh, Doug Suisha's blog, My Greatest uh, Adventure 80. So, woof. We, we should mention Paul Hicks just because he's specifically asked to be mentioned on the show. So, Paul Hicks is Doom Patrol podcast. Could we just like, say his name like three times? Paul Hicks. Paul Hicks. Paul, Paul Hicks. Paul Hicks. Paul Hicks. Paul. I already said Waiting for Doom podcast, so I did talk about him. So. Right. Anyway. But he wanted his name, I think, specifically. Said. He's, in the, he's in the feedback section. Get over it. These Australians are so demanding. Anyway, um, up next is Kane and Abel. There we go. <laughs> Here's the stuff where I want. Why don't you describe the drawing to everybody? All right. It's by Kelly Jones, the, the sort of uh, new version of Bernie Wrightson. Uh, it's got uh, Kane looking kind of like Batman a little, or the Spectre, with his cloak just sort of fluttering in the breeze. And then below him is his brother Abel sitting on a uh, big uh, pile of skulls, of course. And in the back is the most narrow version of the House of Mystery ever seen. I love it. <laughs> thing looks like uh, I, I, I love how completely distorted from reality it is. It's great. Uh, the listing is tremendous. I, it's got both of them. It mentions it House of Mystery 175, and Abel was in House of Secrets 81. And it has a little group shot of the two of them uh, as uh, the whole bit where, you know, Abel would follow Kane as Kane would tell a story about the, the House of Mystery. This is the kind of thing that I want to – and I, look, I'm going to say this now, and this is going to be the one time I'm going to get it out because we don't need to go into it every – for however many issues we're going to – like 16, I guess, there were of these things. We're well, gonna, 16, then two updates, yeah. All right, 18 episodes. Okay. My beef with the who's, with the who's who loose leaves is that they were aimed – for a different thing. They were aimed at people more interested in, as I mentioned, DC Comics of the present and then going forward. And I, mm -hmm. my thing for Who's Who was I love the lookbacks at the older characters. That was the thing that I enjoyed the most. I was like, ooh, Captain Fear by Walt Simonson. Cool. You know, like that, and that, but that is a very minority opinion. Most comics fans in 1990, 91, didn't care about Captain Fear or didn't care about, uh, you know, whatever. I, I'm blanking on Ultra the Multi-Alien. They, the they wanted the new characters. So my complaint with this as a series is just because that, you know, it's not a fault. It's the series is aimed at a different audience. So this is the kind of thing I love is that it's, it, they did bother to go back and talk about older characters like this who really didn't necessarily deserve a listing. There's nothing new about Cain and Abel particularly. Uh... What? Yeah. What? They're support they're supporting characters in Sandman by this point. All right, but that's not a huge That's why Kelly Jones did the art. I yeah, all right. I mean that's not a huge thing though. I mean they're just kind of the side guys. It was I mean House of Mystery wasn't a book anymore. Or anything. True, House of, true. You know what I mean? But, it's, but Sandman was huge. I mean it's on issue eighteen already, so Sandman yeah, was that's a huge true. runaway. All hit. Right, that's true. I, I just I, I still I'm still taking it as this is a nice nod to the past of older characters, because as you just talked about, the Brotherhood of Dada, like, that's, like, brand spanking new. So mm -hmm. I like the fact that they did this, and they went back to some of the older characters. And I love this listing. Kelly Jones is a great artist, the perfect guy. If they couldn't get Wrightson, uh, Kelly Jones was a, a great substitute. So this is cool. I love this one. 
McCullough Jones worked on the the Sandman book as well, right? Too, right? Didn't right, right. I think he didn't? I, yeah, I believe he did. Yeah, there were a Ooh. lot of a lot of people worked on Sandman. Somebody's gonna give me ding me for that one if not. Well, Amethyst is a good callback too. I mean, she hadn't been in publication for three years, but she goes back, mm. you know, uh, seven or eight years at that point too. So it's you know, kind of either way. I'm glad you got that out of your system because I don't want to hear that again. Anyway, um. You know, one of the things listed in here that I don't know goes historically. Is it always been in the hills of Kentucky? I mean, is this always like around the corner from Chris Franklin's house, or is this a new addition <laughs> at this point? It's it's such a shame that the House of Mystery is in Kentucky because of the five of the well, not the file of the of I should say of the many people that make up the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Chick uh, Chris is the most chicken of all of us, and so <laughs> he's the person least likely to go to the House of Mystery, and ironically, he's the one closest to it. <laughs> the <laughs> I can't touch that. That's good. <laughs> uh, lots of horror, lots of macabre, lots of fun. They talk about Cain killing Abel all the time, and as you said, how Abel's always so devoted to his brother. They are immortal, uh, as near as anyone can tell. I mean, they don't come out, like I said, they, they just appear to be immortal. They just kind of like gloss over it. They're like, I guess yeah, I they mean, are. We don't really know. Yeah, I mean, like, and, you know, as you would see in the Bible, Cain constantly kept killing Abel. And then Abel yep. would be back for the next issue. Yep. And uh, they also mentioned that the houses of the secrets and mystery both exist in our world and in the dream dimension. So, very cool. Anyway, Sandman was on issue 18 at this point. We didn't mention Peter Sanderson wrote the entry. But if you want more on uh, Cain and Abel, or at least this type of scary, creepy, macabre stuff, check out the Midnight, the podcasting hour podcast by our buddy Ryan Daly. And why in the heck hasn't anybody in our circle of friends started a Sandman podcast yet? I don't get that. That's crazy. There must be one out there. There I'm sure there's got to be one out there, but I don't know one. So, yeah, hmm. yeah. all right. Up next, now this you could think of this as a callback, but it's not really. Uh, Challengers of the Unknown. Um, now, I should have mentioned, by the way, Cain and Abel were purple for Supernatural. Challengers of the Unknown are red for Hero Team. And this gets a creator credit, interestingly enough, created by Jack Kirby, which means that there's an equity arrangement there, right? But there was no way they were giving equity arrangements back in 1957. So this must have been like a retroactive deal he made with DC, like give me yeah. credit for everything I created, I would assume. I think um, when, I think when Kirby did the superpower stuff, like he ended up getting deals for a lot of his characters because they sense. worked out yeah. the whole new god stuff and things like that. Interesting thing about this one is is the text is by Jeff Loeb and the art is by Tim Sale, two people that would go on to do a lot of work together over the years, very successful stuff. And uh, the front shows you the four guys uh, of the main challengers. You've got uh, Rocky, Ace, Red, and Prof. They're all in their purple jumpsuits with white gloves and white glo- uh, boots. And they, you can see what you assume is Challenger Mountain behind them, but they appear to be the size of Giganta and standing over a very small city. So, uh, and they have their logo up there, which looks totally boss. Uh, what do you think of the art? I'm not a fan of the artwork. I, Tim Tim Sale is someone who I think eventually kind of grew into his style. I mean, like the Long Halloween and all stuff mm-hmm. like that, and Daredevil Red and Red and Yellow, whatever that series they did. But this is early on in his career, and I distinctly remember getting to this listing and I went, "What?" Because I just yeah. thought this looked yeah. really amateurish. Aside from the fact that it, it, if you don't know the challengers, you're like, "Are they giants?" know that right <laughs> um but just to fit like to me this is just a, not a very good drawing and, and it's a little rough and i'm confused at like were the challengers like post-crisis retconned or something because there's no mention of june robbins the female challenger at all and, i'm like, glad you brought that up I'm, i wrote down the same thing and I, I think i know why but if you do look in the bottom left hand corner of the you know the little art on the back they show five challengers yeah they do and one of them does appear to be june yes but so she's not it does mentioned seem like, in the listing at all and I think 
Well, I guess I don't know why. Uh, my reason was not going to be solid now that I think about it. Because this whole entry, I agree with you on the art. The art's a bit of a miss. It's not my favorite. Uh, I do like Tim Sale's work, not at this point, or at least in this particular drawing. Uh, and and it, as someone who was buying this at the time, this was a real head-scratch. Like, okay, I knew who the Challenger Zone known is, but why such a distinct, stylized entry for such characters that are supposed to be sort of basically the FF, you know? So the more you look into it, uh, what this really was, this was not about what had been done in the DC Universe recently. It's what's going to happen in the DC Universe. Keep in mind, this is the summer of 1990. Come March of 1991, there was a Challengers of the Unknown miniseries by Tim Sale and Jeff Lowe. Right. So they were already getting it ready for it. But in that story, they were all middle-aged and were coming back together. So um, real quick, the character Ace is your pilot. Uh, and he's a team leader. Rocky is a championship wrestler, and he's the heart of the team. Red is a mountaineer, secretly working with the CIA, real hothead. And Prof was an underwater diving expert. Sounds like the formula for the Centurions cartoon to me. Um, <laughs> so basically, for Kirby, he, he worked on it from 1957 to 1971. I'm sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. They were in publication yeah. from 1957 to 1971. Kirby left in 1958, which he then went on to create the FF. And by the way, if you love both teams, Amalgam did do a comic where it had, uh, was it Challengers of the Fantastic, I think is what it was whereas those two teams combined oh, right, kind of cool. right 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 and it's a real challenge of the unknown is a totally kick-ass concept it really really is why can't anybody get this right and make it popular i don't get it four action guys each one with their own specialty out saving the world i mean it, it, it's a, it writes itself and every few years somebody tries to do it again and it never takes for some reason i i think it's great yeah me too i always like the challengers and yet despite their middling comic book success they're one of the few DC Comics characters, I think you can count them on like one hand, that had a prose novel written about them. There's a challenge yes. to the unknown prose novel. Like, In what, 1970, like, 1977. Yeah. <laughs> like Superman, Batman, and the Challengers? Okay, sure, why not? Right. Um, one other thing about the listing that, again, I'm not going to go on and on about this, but it just notices, is that to me, one of the downsides to trying to be hip and current and of the moment is that the thing immediately ages the minute these references get out of date. And in this listing, it mentions Hulk Hogan and Rowdy Piper. Oh, yeah. And it's just a little like, what? Because I think if you're older, you're, you know, later on, you're like, who the hell? I mean, Hulk Hogan, is that that sex tape guy? Uh, you know, and you're just oh like, God. what is this? So that's, you know, maybe Jeff Loeb trying maybe a little too hard on that, but it's okay. It's I'm, I'm glad they were mentioned, and I like the little action shots of them. Yeah. Because it's, again, I like to challenge them. I think they're cool. They're fighting multi-man from the JLI, which is great. <laughs> By the way, one of the things I should have mentioned in the first appearances, one of the things they've added this time around is we get the year and the month. That's great, So in this too. case, showcase number six from January to February 1957, which gives you a real perspective. That helped yes. me as a reader. Because it gives you, you know, you see a character like Rex the Wonder Dog. I always talk about him, you know. I had no idea when he was published, whether it was last week or 20 years ago. So this tells you, oh, 1957. Okay, these guys have been around. So if you really want to see something cool with the Challenge of the Unknown, two places you can check it out. Darwin Cook's New Frontier. They were used quite effectively in there. And they also were used well in the Batman Brave and the Bull cartoon. So those are probably your best places. All right. Uh, and no one has any blogs or shows about them. Sorry. All right. Up next is Dark Seed. Um, I'm just kidding. It's Dark Side. I used to get, people would get, used to have playground fights over this. Anyway, uh, it, the art is by Mark Badger which is very unusual. I did a lot of research on trying to figure out why Mark Badger drew this. I could find no connection other than, like you said earlier, they're trying to bring in different artists to represent the characters that they thought would be a good match. And while this is very dark and scratchy, and as a kid I didn't like it, as an adult I really like this representation of Darkseid. It's basically him sitting there, lean, like he's sitting on a 
you know, looks like a log by the fire, kind of. But he's leaning forward. You can clearly tell he's leaning forward with his hands grasped together, and he's staring into this sort of flame in front of him, and it's got Orion's face on it. I think it looks great. What do you think? Yeah, it's neat. Uh, it's not what you would expect. It's more pensive, you know? Mm-hmm. You would expect Dark Side to be all like, you know, raging or whatever. Although, of course, the Kirby list thing had him just standing there. So, um, <laughs> But, I mean, considering now he is like the big bad of the DC Universe and stuff, and presumably he's going to be the villain and some Justice League movie if they ever make another one or whatever. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting take on it. Um, I, I I like the lighting. I think it's cool. I like all the um, the ink the ink splattery effects that Badger goes mm-hmm. for in the fire and, the, the like, Orion looking all pissed off. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting way to go about it. it wouldn't, it's a, And I, I, I'm hit or miss on Mark Badger. Sometimes I like his stuff. Sometimes I don't. Um, I like the little insets. The, the face-off between him and Orion is good. Gives you a sense of Orion, you know, that like mm-hmm. he's staring down this guy, and yet he's all like, Rrr! and then they talk about the uh, the Omega Blast and stuff like that. So yeah, it's Omega Effect. I'm I'm sorry, um, but yeah, I, and this is nothing where the, the dates really come in to play because it mentions, of course, first appearance Jimmy Olsen 134, which is like if you don't know anything about the Fourth World comics, you're like, what Jimmy Olsen? <laughs> That's where Darkseid first appeared. But 1970 does really help give you context because Darkseid yep. is one of those characters where you're like. How long has this guy? Been? I don't know. Is he like? Has he been around since the beginning? He's he's like the DC villain. But 1970 really gives you a sense of like, oh, okay, this is kind of where he came around. He's only 20 years ago at this point. Yeah. Um, on the front, I do love his death metal logo. Um, looks like totally a, a metal band from the 80s, Dark Side logo, which I think looks perfect for him. Looks great. Uh, the, the, the little inset picture, the one of uh, his, his headshot, it does look a little glamour shot esque. It looks like he's kind of smiling, like, "Hi, I like long weeks. Uh, I like long walks by the fire pits." Come on, do the know? voice. I like long walks by the fire pits of apocalypse. See, I, like that, that is so good. You really do a good dark side. Gotta say. Well, now I can't talk for the rest of the night. It hurts. <laughs> well, my plan uh, has worked. A couple, uh, a couple things I learned <laughs> as I was reading this I thought was interesting. In his youth, he used to pretend to be like this calm, cool, collected rich kid, like a spoiled rich kid who knew his place. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I love that bit. And uh, But, you know, the plot we do know is where he was plotting to start a war with New Genesis, and he tricked his uncle Stefan Wolf into helping him uh, and start the war. And then uh, in here they talk about how Darkseid loved a woman named Suli, and they had a son named Calabac. And then Darkseid's mother, uh, was it Haga, I think her name was, she had Suli assassinated. How horrible is that? That's how I lost my first wife. Anyway, um, and then oh, later on there was an arranged marriage to Tigra, and then she, they begat the son, Orion. And he didn't care for either one of them, so he banished both Tigra and Orion. He ended up murdering his own mother and taking the throne. And this war with New Genesis eventually became a distraction for him because he's trying to conquer the universe. And here he's distracted by this, you know, this nonsense. So he actually proposed, you know, works on this peace treaty uh, with Highfather. And the whole deal was he was going to trade his son Orion, who frankly he didn't care about, for Highfather's son, which was of course Scott Free, who goes on to be Mister Miracle, and that, you know, that whole big shtick. And uh, and the whole time he's looking for the anti-life equation. Now one of the things they do talk about in here too is Darkseid has a real strong sense of honor, and I'm glad they mentioned that in there because when you think about it, you step back and you know. Darkseid really does. I mean, if he feels an opponent is worthy, he'll sometimes let them go, you know? So that's, that's, a, that's, that's a nice trait of his. That's the only anyway, way you can write the character, because otherwise he could just kill everybody. That's true, with his Omega Effect that you mentioned earlier. That's right, and you see him blasting uh, somebody with his Omega Effect right there. And uh, let's see what else. Uh, at this point, um, there was an ongoing New God series. It was the 1989 series, because there have been several that had been launched in the 80s. Uh, this was the 1989 series, and they were on issue 19 at this point. And, um, oh, the R- I mean, the story's written by Mark. Wait, we didn't mention that. So, And, you know, again, I don't know of anybody in our circle of friends that's doing, like, an ongoing New Gods. 
blog podcast thing. Again, I'm sure there's something out there. Uh, there's probably 18 forever people podcasts we don't know about or something. <laughs> but um, I, if anyone knows of a new God thing, let me know. I'd be interested to hear. I know some people have like done segments on their shows. Like, we're going to do new gods this month, but you know, not an ongoing sort of initiative. That would be interesting to do a podcast that just tracks the, the whole new God storyline. The fourth the world first, podcast. Fourth from. world, yeah, from like from the first issue all the way till Hunger Dogs. That would be right. really interesting. Again, I'm sure somebody has, and we just don't know about it. But anyway, next one. And here is where I feel like somebody finally understands the new format of the book. Uh, it is The Dominators, and art is by Chris Sprouse and Al Gordon. And it's this gorgeous shot of The Dominators, of course, the guys from Invasion. And he's, you know, it's got the big yellow, creepy alien with the giant red dot, and he's reaching towards this holographic image of the Earth in the front. And, oh, actually, that's Storeprint, technically, isn't it? And he's, so he's reaching towards this globe of the Earth, and there's other Dominators behind it. But the whole space is filled with either technology or space. It is gorgeously done. Uh, the, the logo is pretty boring. But in general, though, this entry, the, the art-wise, this is the first one I've seen that goes, yes, this knows how to use the new format. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's nice. I thought it was uh, actually Todd McFarlane when I first saw it because it, it doesn't look real Chris Sprousey to me, but I guess that's the work of Al Gordon. Uh, it's interesting that they give them two different sets of appearances, 20th century and 30th century. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, is it that big of a deal that they're different? I mean, they're yes. an alien race. I mean, you know. Well, it's important because they've been around with the Legion since the right, '60s, right? And then they we we never even saw them till very recently, and they were the headliners in the Invasion miniseries. So, because they were such a big deal in Invasion, which keep in mind at this point was just what last year, two years ago, last year, '89, isn't it? '88? Um, oh, it probably says right here, doesn't it? No, it, it doesn't. Inv- yes, it's '88. Invasion number so one, 1988. Yep. Yeah. So two years ago. So I mean, that's I, th- I think it merits being mentioned. It really okay. did change the Dominators as well, that okay. miniseries, because then uh, what happens is they do the Invasion miniseries. Then after that, they become a major, major player right afterwards in the Legion of Superheroes series, where uh, the five-year-later series, where basically Earth is in complete disrepair. And the, 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 the Dominators basically do what you could call a quiet invasion. They take over the government without anyone ever knowing, without a shot ever fired. And it's really creepy how much they're in control of the Earth. And it was all kind of coming out of the Invasion Miniseries rather than the classic stuff. Right? They really took them – the, the Invasion Miniseries did a lot to raise their profile. So someone should, do um, a, someone should do a podcast where they track all the Invasion issues in order. That would be really interesting. That's just stupid. That's ridiculous, Rob. Just quit throwing out those dumb ideas. Anyway, uh, so these aliens, uh, again, they're yellow. They have a they have a very distinct caste system in their species, and it's always represented by these red discs on their forehead. The larger the size of the disc, the more important you are in society. And they're very scientific uh, and te- they're very technologically advanced. And they're very mi- they're like militant scientists. Maybe is the best way to say it. And they were the ones who discovered the metagene, which then leads to the term you know metahuman. And uh, they had encountered all kinds of races all over the universe, and in every single one, it was like an episode to Star Trek where everybody they met on a planet was homogenous. Like, oh, everyone on this planet has a power, therefore they're all telepaths. Everyone on this planet has super strength, whereas they come to Earth and everyone's got different powers. And so they thought that was really strange. They studied it. They were very afraid of what Earth would become. And so they uh, decided to do an alien invasion, which again you might hear about on some podcast somewhere. I don't know. And uh, I already talked about the 30th century side of it, so there we go. That's that's really what it is. Uh, the interesting thing to me is Chris Sprouse drew this entry, and I immediately thought, oh, well, he drew the Legion of Superheroes. He hasn't yet and won't draw the Legion of Superheroes for two years. 
So the fact that he got this gig two years before doing the Legion was you know, kind of um, you know, kind of coincidental and nice. Um, serendipitous is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, uh, Mark Wade wrote the entry because Mark Wade is, loves the Legion. And of course, yes, if you want more information on Invasion, please listen to the amazing podcast, First Strike Invasion, with our good friend Cisco and Boss on the Firewater Podcast Network. You can also check out the Legion of Super Bloggers, which is another site which documents a lot of stuff about the Dominators. And um, they are orange. They have the border of orange, by the way, for aliens. So very cool. All right. Uh, up next, El Diablo. So on the cover, you've got him, uh, El Diablo, who is a very contemporary hero at this point. He is riding his motorcycle in like he's swinging on a rope, maybe? Uh, it's kind of how it looks. And he's punching, he's back or backhanding a guy, which looks great, uh, with the El Diablo logo there. Uh, what, what do you think of the image on the front here, Rob? Oh, it's fantastic. I, every time I see Mike Parabek's work again, I sort of get reminded of how friggin' good he was. I just, it's such a beautiful piece. I just, man, that guy died way too soon. It's great, great talent. I do wonder why the earlier version of El Diablo doesn't get mentioned uh, mm. in the first appearance. Like, they, if you didn't know better, you would just think El Diablo first appeared in 1989 and there was never another El Diablo. Now, I understand he's not another version of the character. He's a distinct character with a different, with just the same name. But I always, I don't know, I think it's a little it's weird. It's like a tornado. Yeah, it's a, it just seems a little weird to me that they don't bother to mention that there was another superhero called El Diablo, but it's okay. They only have a certain amount of space, but beautiful, beautiful drawing. And these the insets are great. It's just Mike Powerback, man. What a talent. So stunning. Uh, his work on Justice Society of America is some of my oh, favorite of all so times. Good. Yeah. So Inked here, by the way, by John Nyberg. Uh, text is written by Mark Wade. As I mentioned, El Diablo is a fairly new character. He was just created recently, and they're on issue number 12 of his series. So not a lot of information here. Uh, it does have the created by credit of Gerard Jones and Mike Parabek. And uh, the character's name Rafael Sandoval, and he lives in Dos Rios, Texas. And he's the first Hispanic city councilman in Dos Rios. When he was young, he was a bit of a thug, and this priest took him under, took him under his wing. And uh, then he went off to Berkeley, got a law degree. He ended up coming home. And there was some corruption in local government, so he got involved. Ended up in this costume uh, through a series of coincidences and ended up standing up for the little guys and everyone cheered and said, you, know, this, you need to be doing this. You need to be helping us protect. So that's what he did. He would spend his days as a councilman, his nights as El Diablo, who had his uh, – he, he didn't have any powers or anything, but he was good boxing, martial arts. He rode a motorcycle. He wore Kevlar vests, things like that. Again, great art, great drawing. Um, the entry, because the character's so new, it is very much the kind I don't like, which is sort of like, then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, which is not my favorite way to read a Who's Who entry, but that's what the Marvel Universe used to do. Uh, but, you know, it's not bad. Uh, but again, the art just makes up for all of it. Um, and I have often thought about trying to read this series. It's got a bit of a taint hanging over it with the, uh, the writer now currently, but anyway. Um, if you want to hear some coverage of El Diablo, our buddy... Um, Professor Alan Quarterbin covered an issue of Diablo on his Quarterbin podcast not too long ago, so it was great. Lots of fun. All right. Moving on. Hold on one second now. i got to mark the – get down the explicit tag for the show. All right. This is where it'll start, folks. That's right. Okay. Because we are doing an Adam Hughes drawing (laughs) of fire. Yes. Go ahead, Jack. Get it out of your system. Thank you. Smoking hot. I'm sorry. (laughs) There is nobody listening to this podcast that will disagree with me that this drawing is not done to elicit a sexual response. That fact. It is, uh, of course, Beatrice Costa. You don't hire Adam Hughes unless you're trying to get a sexual response for the drawings. Uh, it is Beatrice DaCosta. On the front, she's wearing her current costume from uh, Justice League America, where she's got basically, it's like a little, very tiny bustier. Uh, her large breasts are pouring out of it. She's Made got from a adamantium, tiny. apparently. 
Yeah, right. She's got this little – actually, she looks a lot like Rogue in this drawing. Actually, now I look at it. She's got a, a little tiny jacket on, and everything's in green tones, and she's got a little headband and gloves and uh, high, you know, jeans. She's showing her belly and this this belt. It's very, very sexy. In the background, again, Adam, Adam Hughes did a great job. This is another entry that really figured out how to use the page. You know, They have a brick wall behind her with all these posters of her throughout different points in her life. Her as a showgirl, her as you know the uh, the character from Justice League, her and her, her friend Ice – and then I guess that's probably Adam Hughes in the background peeking out over her armpits. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> you see what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, the photo. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, that probably is him, yeah. I would yeah. Imagine. So the logo's a little kind of lame, but it, well, it, I mean, they tried to do something different. There's tried to be like little letters with f- flames behind it. But either way, um, it created by E. Nelson Bridwell and Ramona Freighton. <laughs> Look at that, buddy. Look at that. I love that if you knew nothing about the history of this character, and you just but you knew what the Super Friends book was, you see this drawing and you're like, wait. That was in Super Friends? Like, what's right. going on? <laughs> or the other way around, if you look at this and think of Fire, who you know from Justice League, and you look at this and go, she came from the Super Friends? Yeah. And she was a, a, a you know a, a nightclub dancer and a, and a spy? What? <laughs> so, yes, that's that's the, her history here. She's Brazilian-born. She was a nightclub showgirl. Then she, of course, went and became a government spy because those two careers matched perfectly. Uh, she ended up on a mission where there was this machine that created pyroplasm, and she ended up getting caught in this explosion of pyroplasm, which gave her her powers which at that point was she could breathe, that's right, short bursts of green flaming breath. Yes, about 12 inches long. That's about all she could do. Uh, now, it could get pretty hot, like a settling torch, but that's she could blow fire. That was it. She joined the, she joined the Global Guardians as Green Fury and then Green Flame, and then eventually um, she became friends with Ice Maiden, who was part of the Global Guardians. And after the Global Guardians shut down, they came to New York and declared their intentions to join the Just League International. Martian Manhunter was not impressed, uh, but however, when they were shorthanded, they needed some help, and they became probationary members and proved themselves to be incredibly, incredibly valuable members of the team. When the invasion gene bomb went off, it changed her powers, and she, she essentially became a green human torch. So think of it that way. That's her powers. And some of the interesting things about her is she's incredibly clever and street smart. Uh, she's very impulsive, and she doesn't seem to take things very seriously. But really, she's a lot more dependable than most people think, and she uses her sexiness and her flirting, which she's very overt, very sexual creature. Uh, she uses this on purpose to distract people and make them sort of underestimate her abilities because she's actually quite competent. And uh, it usually takes people by surprise in that way. She's an above av- – it says here she's an above average com- uh, hand-to-hand combatant. It should be a lot higher. She can really kick the ass. Like when she was in government spy role and then later on some of the Justice League issues before she had her powers, she could kick the crap out of anybody. So she really – I'd say it's a lot more than above average. But anyway, um, right now at this point in Justice League history, uh, they're on Justice League of America number 41, which is right after that Despero storyline I mentioned earlier. Great, and, uh, uh, great, great story. Oh, yeah. And if you want more on her, you can check out the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast over here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by an incredibly dashing young man. And uh, there you can also check out the Secret Origins podcast, where they cover the JLI origins. Um, that, was a, that was a lot of fun in that one, too. Now, I should have mentioned the, the writing was done by Mark Wade. Uh, it would not be a Who's Who episode if I don't make a quibble about the height or weight. And oh, here it says uh, Hot Fire is 5'8", which is very tall for a woman, 130 pounds. Nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. She's not 100. No woman who is 5'8 is 130 unless she is stick thin. And no woman built 
like a brick you know what house that uh, <laughs> fire is is 130 pounds fair enough okay up next is geoforce uh art here is <laughs> push up art here is by let me get it out before you start making fun of it craig uh Bra- brasfield and carl kessel and geoforce is on the cover he is fighting the masters of disaster behind him is uh i can't even remember their names they're so they're such shakedown 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 Cold yes snap. And cold snap, and then someone else's leg is yellow and red. Uh, folks, this drawing is really not good. I'm just going to put it right out there. Like, eh, eh, Carl Kiesel did what he could to save it, but it's not good. You're the artist. Talk about this, please. I don't actually think it's bad. I think it's funny, and I don't know whether it's supposed to be, but just the, the look on Shakedown's face is really funny, and cold snap as he's being thrown by Geoforce is like, ah! <laughs> it's just, it's, it, I don't know. Again, I don't know whether it's meant to be funny or not. If it's not meant to be, then it probably is not very great. But if it's meant to be just sort of goofy, then it does its, it does its job because it's very, very funny. It just looks very silly of Geoforce just tearing into people uh, left and right. I did wonder on the, the back, though, in the listing, yeah. it doesn't, like, Terra was dead by this point, the whole Teen Correct. Titans storyline. But it doesn't it – seems to, it seems to refer to her in present tense, which confused me. Um, in the last paragraph, it says, Also unknown is how Terra received her powers to control the Earth, though it is known these abilities were imparted by unauthorized exposure to the – oh, I'm sorry, no, the sentence, the sentence before. Little known is, is Brian's half-sister, Tara Markov, the former Teen Titan known as Terra. She and Brian are related through their father. The identity of Terra's mother is unknown. You, you would think you would put their like you would mention her in the past tense because she was dead by now. That it was, that's true. I, and I was like, did they bring her back? I, I gave up on Teen Titans at a certain well, point, so I didn't know. She was dead at this point, but about a year or two from now, they bring she her back. Come, well, they didn't bring her back. They brought a Terra from the future. Oh good. Oh god Almighty. And no, no, it was it was pretty good. Um, they brought a Terra from the future who was not supposed to be here, but then after a while, you start thinking, oh my gosh. Is this actually her? It was very strange. It, it wasn't her, like, older from the future. It was a young girl. Basically, it was just like Tara. She was young. She was a hero, everything. And it, it, but she wasn't tainted with evil. It was really an interesting story. Uh, it ended badly because Marvel Wolfman got writer's block. But uh, it started off really interesting. So, yes, the gist of it here is um, – and by the way, the, the, the text here is written by Mike W. Barr. Uh, so his, his text, is not, his text is not jokey at all. So I think the no. comic's supposed to be serious, but okay. so I think right. I think it's bad news. And you get the creative by Mark W. Barr and Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. Woohoo! Yeah. So his name's his name is Brian Markov, and he's the Prince of Markovia. And Baron Bedlam invaded Markovia and killed the king. And so um, Geoforce's brother Gregor took the throne. And then at that point, Doctor Jace gave Byron uh, Brian his powers, which to help him save the country. So after they repelled the invasion from uh, Baron. Uh, Bedlam, uh, he ended up coming to America and he helped found the Outsiders. Eventually, the Outsiders split with Batman, as they always do. And Dr. Jace was revealed to be a Manhunter eventually. And so the Outsiders disbanded, as they always do. And uh, he was very, very powerful and he relies too much on his powers. They talk about, I do like how they talk about. He, he's not that smart, basically, is what they say. He's got a temper, he's not a strategist, he's a poor leader, but makes an excellent soldier, which I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, he was, he was always written like that. It's a big, big kind of a blockhead, you know. Yeah. We would run off and like that great issue of uh, Batman the Outsiders number nineteen. Mm-hmm. And yes, Siskoid, there are great issues of Batman and the Outsiders, where uh, Batman has to call in Superman, and that 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 plays into that. The Geoforce won't listen to reason, and Batman is of course only Batman. He can only do so much, so he has to call in Superman to get Geoforce to calm the hell down. That's a great issue. We read that for an uh, episode of our podcast. We did. One time. We did. So. 
Yep. So his powers, he allows him to uh, increase or reduce gravity. He can project lava blasts, which also allow him to fly, and he's super strong, which is why he can pick up Cold Snap over his head. Now, um, a couple different things here worth mentioning, too, is the art. We talked about the front. I'm not impressed. Although the art on the back is actually really good. Like, the little images of him, like the royal family picture with lots of detail in front of the painting and everything, I love that. The image of him and his sister where she's got, like, the water balloon, I really like that. So... The art could have been good. I just feel like it's more the layout than anything on the cover, which is what's the big letdown to me, I think. But um, interestingly enough, at this point in history, Geoforce was nowhere. Uh, he hadn't been seen at all in 1990. In fact, he hadn't been seen in a year. Um, it had been a little while. Like he, In the year 1990, he didn't appear in a comic, I think, if I looked it up right. And he won't really reappear on a regular basis until November 1993. So here's an example of a character that wasn't really current. Now, he had been around and was important, but he wasn't at this point. So for more information on Geoforce, please check out the non-existent Batman and the Outsiders podcast by our buddy Mike Giuscaro. So <laughs> next entry is for Hawk. This is Hank Hall, folks. And he's got a red border for hero, of course. And art is by Greg Guler and Scott Hanna, who were the artists on, or at least Greg Guler was the artist on the Hawk and Dove series at this point. And this cover, or the, I keep calling him cover, the, the image is really... I think a very Rob Liefeld inspired image because Rob Liefeld put Hawk and Dove on the map. You know, that, that Forestry miniseries he drew, uh, it was early in Rob's career before he did New Mutants and it really exploded because no one was drawing like that at DC, you know, other than Tom McFarlane. And so really helped put Hawk and Dove on the map and I feel like here they're still trying to sort of catch that Rob Liefeld oomph, if you will, if there is such a thing. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of the drawing here? Uh, I've been pretty complimentary to the listings so far. This is awful. <laughs> I think this is just awful. This does not look like a human. Uh, I don't know what this is. This is like a He-Man doll or something. I, I, if this is the if this is what the artwork was on the Hawk and Dove series, no wonder I didn't buy it. This is just, this is to me an eyesore. This is hideous. Sorry. You just backed up everything I said. So thank you. It looks like a Rob Liefeld inspired thing. Yeah. Inspired thing. Oh. The cape is flying up out of nowhere. The leg muscles are larger than twice the width of his head. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. This 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 is this doesn't look like a human being. This looks right. like some sort of irradiated monster. Yeah. So and he was supposed to be larger than life, but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so. it, it you know oddly enough it doesn't bother me though it, from a '90s perspective I totally get this drawing. So it's not well it's not my favorite. Um, but I, I get it though, you know, I do like I mean, the way they I, do the cape and stuff like that. I, I, I mean, I do realize that like as Hawk, he's like enlarged cause it mentions he's 181 pounds as Hawk 320. So all mm-hmm. of a sudden he like roids out, but it just, I don't like, how would Hawk even move? You feel like any villain could just walk over, just knock him over and he'd be like a turtle. Like he wouldn't be able to get <laughs> So, all right, we're getting into this. Uh, the story here is written by Barbara Castle, who wrote the series, which is nice. And um, so, so the gist of it is there was Hawk and there was Dove. Hawk represented war and was the conservative perspective. Dove was peace and the liberal perspective. And uh, the, the point of the, of the comic, as it was created, was to show people that peace and uh, war can work together in balance is what they wanted to show. <laughs> and they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And this this entry here is chock a block full of retcons of the Lords of Order and Chaos stuff. So uh, the gist of it is, um, Hawk and Dove, though their fathers, it was it was Hank and his brother Don. Their their father was a Supreme Court or Superior Court judge, and there was this assassination attempt. And the boys were there, and they were sort of trapped, and they were wishing for powers if they could go help their dad. Whammo! Suddenly they became Hawk and Dove, and uh, they they end up eventually joining the Teen Titans. The brother Don died during the crisis, and the power of Dove was transferred to Don Granger, who's Hermione's aunt. And then Hawk was, at this point, he was kind of out of control because he didn't have a dove. 
Dove, uh, without the balance of Dove. So her, uh, Dawn Granger becomes Dove. They become a new team. Uh, then they find out this whole connection with the Lords of Order and Chaos. Kind of crazy. Uh, Hawk's powers are super strength. He's fast. He's invulnerable. He's always on the offensive. He's very easy to enrage. At this point, they were on issue 15 of their ongoing series, and they were heading like a freight train, though nobody knew it at the time. They were heading like a freight train for Armageddon 2001. So, um, and if you want more on Hawk and Dove, you should check out the forthcoming Head Speaks podcast about Armageddon 2001. Sorry, spoilers. And also, I appeared on an episode of Batman to Oracle, where Stella and I talked about Hawk and Dove for a, a couple of, either one episode or two, talking about the Velvet Tiger. So you should also mention Hawk and Dove is coming to live action. Oh, that's right. They totally are. Good point. Played yeah. Hawk is played by the guy that played Aquaman on Smallville. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, it's oh, it's oh, oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. It's AC, right? Yo, AC. Yeah, the AC Aquaman. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. The Aqua Bro. All right, that'll be fun. All right, up next. Ooh, here we go, folks. This is uh, <laughs> this tells you that, that they've got nothing but A-listers in this book. It's Jericho. <laughs> From the Teen Titans. Oh, the pain. One of my least favorite characters. Um, he has the banner of red for hero, which is completely a lie. And art here oh. is by Tom Grummet and Al Vey, which is great. I mean, this is – the art is fantastic. Tom if you, Grummet, if you, great artist. Yeah, if you got to have someone draw a, a dud entry, uh, this is the guy to do it, you know. So it's got the inc- overly complex costume that George Perez designed as like a prank on every other artist in the world. Uh, and then it's got – you see it, Rob? It's got Sir Prince. Mm-hmm. It's got surprint of him as he's taking possession of somebody. Yeah. Oh, that's all I get out of you. It's your only <laughs> surprint you're probably going to see in this whole damn book. Anyway, so has he got long hair or is that a mullet? I'm I'm kind of confused. That's long hair. A mullet is like specifically kind of like the, I don't know. To me, that's not that's not a mullet. He just has long hair. Okay. All right. Uh, his name is Joseph William Wilson. He is the son of Deathstroke. And uh, basically, uh, after Deathstroke was enhanced with all his powers and such, uh, him and his wife had a, a second son, which was Joseph, and he was born a mutant. And this international assassin kidnapped Joseph to get to Deathstroke, and one of his men slit Joseph's throat. Uh, and he survived, but he was a mute. It was really horrible. And then he ended up meeting the Titans during the Judas contract, and his power is to take control of other people's bodies. He disappears. That's what we're seeing the, the serpent image of. He disappears inside the body when he controls them, but apparently the person can still control their own talking. He doesn't control their talking. Um, and uh, and now if they're unconscious, he can control the talking. It gets a little complicated. Anyway, he's supposed to be this sort of peace, love, hippie kind of guy. He's into music and poetry and painting. Um, and uh, at this point, New Teen Titans was on issue number – or actually it was New Titans at this point. It was issue number 68. They are just like three months before the Titans hunt, which would change everything, including Jericho's position with the Teen Titans forever. So uh, he doesn't deserve that red logo. I'll just say that. Anyway, if you, uh, anything, uh, you, anything you want to add before I tell people where to find more? They should have done a Jericho dead man team up because they would have been each possessing somebody else. And then those two people would have gone on the adventure. That's clever. That's clever. Okay. So uh, it, it's a dud of a character, but the art looks great. It really, really does. <laughs> if you want more on Jericho, you can check out the Pop Culture Affidavit blog, uh, which our buddy Tom Panneries runs. You can check out the Tighten Up the Defense podcast, or there is a Jericho fan club headed up by our buddy Philemon, who meets on a tree fort out on Fifth Avenue, if you want to check that out. So uh, up next, <laughs> I love you, Philemon. You know I do. I pick on you mercilessly, but I love you, bro. All right. Up next is Kono. I love 
love this. We're in the Legion of Superheroes five year later era, folks. And you know how I know it's a Legion of Superheroes character? Because they put the Legion of Superheroes logo right on it, which is kind of crazy. It says Legion of Superheroes, and above it has Kono, her name. And it's got this young lady who she is walking away from the scene of many crimes, whistling, trying to look nondescript with, her, with money pouring out of her pockets and jewelry. She has clearly just pickpocketed all these people. And you know it's the future because the costumes look strange and there's weird uh, signs in alien writing. Uh, art by Kevin McGuire and Car- uh, Carl Kessel. What do you think of this drawing here? Uh, it's a really nice piece. I'm a little confused as to what's happening. I mean, he's, she stole stuff out of that guy's pockets because he's pulling out his pockets. We see that. But what's happening to the other people? Like, they're like, the one guy's got his fist up, and the, the one girl looks like she had her dress torn off because she's in, like, a bikini. So, like, I don't what? fully understand what's happening. I think the girl has lost her necklace because her hands appear to be up near her chest, right, chest right. lower region. Right, and Kono has a necklace in her pocket. Yep. Um, the other guy on the ground, like maybe he's looking, like maybe he dropped something. All right, I'm just, you know, yeah, I'm a little, just a little like what? Like, did she steal that? The, well, the other dress? guy, the other guy's not. His fist isn't raised. He's holding up like his man purse, and he's like looking in his man purse. Oh, is that what he's doing? Oh, all right, I couldn't yeah. figure that out. All right, anyway, yeah. but it's a nice draw. It's a, it's a nice drawing. I mean, it mentions in the in the text about. That she did, made people's clothes disappear as, mm-hmm. like a, as like a prank. So I'm like, well, wait, this, uh, this woman's clothes seems to have disappeared. Is that what she's doing here? I fully understand what's going on. But in the future, people dress more provocatively, as we know right. for a fact. So like that's a possible. Ken outfit rocking there, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, Kevin McGuire drawing this, I have no idea why. I can't find any connection between him and this character, but. God bless him. Uh, on the back, you got a great headshot. She's so cute. She's she's an adolescent. She's probably like 15 or 16. And also on the back, you see her sort of phasing through a wall, much like Kitty. And then there's this one picture, which I did not understand. She is standing there in lingerie, and there's other legionnaires around who clearly have been awoken because chameleon boys in, a, in like a nightcap sleeping. And the, the, the ceiling is collapsing on this guy. So I reached out to our buddy, Dr. Ange, and I'm like, okay, Kono in lingerie, I don't remember this. That does seem like something I would remember. What's going on here? And what what happened in this particular issue, I had forgotten, and he, he even found the specific reference because Dr. Ange is amazing. Uh, in the issue, Mordrew had captured all the Legion and dressed them in sort of period-appropriate clothing, so back in like you know the 1800s type thing. And so that's why she's she woke up in that lingerie basically, and she was furious about it. And this bad guy breaks in. There's going to be a huge battle, and she decides just to end it by dropping the ceiling on him, which was hysterical. And that's why she looks so kind of like nonchalant, like, this is over now. Uh, anyway, great character. The history is she's from a planet called Sklar, where the women are in charge, and uh, they're, techno- they're technology raiders, and uh, they, we even mentioned during the Legion uh, Who's Who episode, and her mother helped the hag, which was the White Witch, and she put a spell, and, and in thanks, she put a spell on her daughter and said, your daughter will be very powerful. That's where you get this daughter, Britta, which, by the way, her name is, her real name is Britta Anon. I had no idea she had a real name. I thought her name was Kono all this time. I had no idea. Highly intelligent, very single-minded. As you, as you mentioned, she can shift mass around, making herself and other objects either denser and material. Uh, in the five-year-later era, she ended up on Rimbor, smuggling with Jonah, who was Ultra Boy, and she was ultimately recruited to help gather the other ex-legionnaires. Now, the name Kona comes from a 30th century alcoholic beverage. Basically, she's boozing as an adolescent. It would be like us calling somebody Pilsner if they were just a booze hound. Um, Anyway, she's fun-loving, she lives life to the fullest, and uh, all about female superiority. At this point, Legion of Superheroes was only on issue 10, the, the five-year-later era, so it was really early in those days. And if you want more on them, you should definitely check out the Legion of, Superheroes, Legion of Super Bloggers. Great stuff. Isn't Kona, right. isn't Kona supposed to be like a teenage girl? Like a young yes. teenage girl? And yet yeah, she's in the lingerie. Okay. I know. That's, right. that's part of the awkwardness of it. So, I, by yeah. the way, I love the portrait, the little headshot by McGuire. Beautiful. 
I, I kind of already said all that, but that's cool. Whatever. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I didn't get to chime in. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Up next is, oh, I love this one. It is my. By the way, everybody, pod. can I just say, I was actually saying something positive about Legion and Shags blew right past it. I'm just trying to hurry up. That's all. Just point that out. Because uh, I'm a little too excited here, and I'm, I'm making these entries probably longer yeah. than I should. So we get my version of Mon Pa Kent. I'm so excited about this. Uh, it is, is Mon Pa Kent from the post-crisis era. It is art by uh, Kerry Gamble and Dennis Jenke. Uh, you got, of course, the blue supporting cast. What do you think of this drawing? It's very nice. It's very nice. I mean, Kerry Gamble, another really great artist. Uh, it's, it's sweet. I mean, you know, I was glad that it's it's kind of something simple. We see him working on a tractor as is something we would see in the movie. Um, regarding the listing, um, like, I'm a little, like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, Mon Pa can't have, like, all this interesting history before they meet Superman. Mm-hmm. And I know it's the whole idea that, you know, your parents had lies before they ever met you, so they were real people. But I always... I always get a little. I always get a little, a little skeptical when we find out that the parents of a famous superhero, like you know, was like, oh, the Parkers were spies. Like, no, they weren't spies. They were just regular people that died. Come on, why does it everything have to be complicated? But anyway, back to the image. I really like the subtle use of the zipatone uh, on uh, Ma Kent's legs and on her apron. Like, and oh, on, I, know, under, I didn't notice that. And under, yeah. under Pa Kent's uh, hat on his overalls. That's a really subtle little use. It's great. I love it. Kerry Gamble, again, another great artist. Yeah, and, and is Ma Kent's bringing, like Pa Kent, he's wiping the back of his neck because it's hot. She's bringing him a thing of lemonade, and you see the house in the background on the farm. It's just absolutely lovely. This is, in my mind, this is what Ma and, Pen Kent, Ma and Pa Kent are. This, this exact drawing, this exact everything. I absolutely love it. As you said, they had lives of their own. Really the big sort of eye-openers here. These all probably came from the World of Smallville miniseries, I would think, where Jonathan was a, a prisoner of war during uh, World War II. And during that time, Martha thought he was dead. So she married another guy, a guy who was dying of lung cancer. Um, also talk about some other little known things you may not know, but then Ma, pa, Ma, Ma Kent, Martha, by the way, uh, made Superman his first costume. And um, she, her and the da- and dad together actually came up with the whole idea of Clark having a disguise, being Clark being the disguise with the slicked hair and the glasses and all that. And then um, really at, at this point, it's important to know they're alive. They're not dead like they were in pre-crisis. They're very much active supporting characters. And more than anyone else, they are responsible for Superman becoming the greatest hero and champion of justice on Earth. And I love them for it. And I love that they made them supporting characters in the Lois and Clark series. I just uh, – and in Smallville as well. But in Lois and Clark, at least he was an adult as Superman. I just uh, couldn't get enough of this. At this point, Superman was on issue number 46. They had recently finished that whole Dark Knight over Metropolis story, which was great, where um, Superman and Batman finally met. Text here is by Peter Sanderson. So, uh, good stuff. Now, if you want more on Mom and Pa Kent during this era, of course, you should check out From Crisis to Crisis, the Superman podcast with our buddy Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. Uh, lots of other Superman podcasts out there, but I'm just going to mention that one because that's specific to this era. I do like also that they mentioned both versions, uh, the historical, as they call oh, it, yeah. action number one, and the current version, Man of Steel number one. That's a nice little detail of like, okay, you know, if you're interested in this version, Start with Man of Steel number one, but if you really want to go all the way back, go back to action number one. I think that's a nice detail. Nice. Very cool. Up next, oof, this is for you, buddy. Uh, Ocean Master, art by Kurt Swan and Joe Rubenstein. Um, and it's Ocean Master standing there. He's under the water. He's got a very, his helmet. This is very, during the very large helmet era, and uh, he's got a giant moray eel behind him. Well, what, do you, what do you think of this one, buddy? 
Uh, this I'm always set up for failure on this stuff because if, if, you, <laughs> if you say you don't like Kurt Swan, you sound like a dick, and I, I just don't like Kurt Swan. I know Chris Franklin is gnashing his teeth right now or whatever they do down there in Kentucky, but I mean, he's just. I don't know. I just don't like this. I just think it's dull, and I'm sorry that they couldn't get somebody else to do it. I understand they couldn't get, or they didn't want to get Craig Hamilton because that series, you know, his career with DC didn't really continue on until later on. And eventually, he came back to the fold. But and 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 Kurtz one was doing the Aquaman mini had just just done the 1989 miniseries, so it makes sense that they got him to yep. do it. But I can't help but be disappointed. I think this is just a very dull listing. That that eel in the background has like a weird like walleye kind of look. He's so Muppet. Like, yeah, he's kinda like, duh what? You know, and then so and then on the on the back we see Aquaman talking to Orm. And this is the new version. This is the Peter David iteration version of, of No, Orm. not yet. It's not. Well it well, all right. It talks about the, the Atlantis Chronicles and stuff like that. Yes, that it does do that. Um and it does mention the events of the, the miniseries, the camo suit miniseries. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm glad now, that he got a listing. <laughs> now, Chris, before you spit your moonshine out in anger with Rob's mention of Kurt Swan, you got to put this in perspective. It's 1990, okay? This is not the era of Kurt Swan drawing superheroes as strongly as he should. And it's, it is – also, the, he got saddled with this horrible mask. Uh, well, I shouldn't say horrible. Craig Hamilton could draw the Ocean Master you know, enhanced mask really Hard cool. To draw it well. Unless yeah. you were Craig Hamilton. Exactly. So it's like a George Perez design sort of thing. The yeah. mask just doesn't yeah. look good done by other people at this point. Yeah. So um, now, I did correct you saying it's not the Peter David version. The, the, the slight distinction is the only time Peter David has touched the Aquaman legend at this point is during Atlantis Chronicles. The the Time and Tide miniseries hasn't started yet. Um, in fact, uh, Atlantis Chronicles oh. is still – hold on. Atlantis Chronicles is still publishing at this point. Uh, issue number seven will come out the month after this issue of Who's Who. And we haven't seen Ocean Master since 1986, really, since one of those previous miniseries. So it's been a long time since we've seen him. In fact, the next Aquaman appearance really is going to be in the Aquaman ongoing that starts in 91, which was the Ken Hooper one, the Sean McLaughlin Ken Hooper one. Right. So um, but it, they do uh, – They t- go ahead. What are you gonna but say? it does mention his father is Atlan. Not it, they'd mention that yes right well that's okay. that's not the that's not the classic version of the of his origin okay I'll give you okay I, Aqu- I Aquaman and Aquaman Arthur and Orm had the same Earthbound father Tom Curry that's that's how that works so the, that's true that is okay. the new version okay fair enough so yes they mentioned Atlantis Chronicles Atlan is their father both of them uh, they talk about how two brothers must always struggle over Atlantis uh, and in this version they say he was a criminal he committed sea crimes including whaling and he met Aquaman and felt some kind of connection with him he did study the Atlantis Chronicles which led him to becoming very powerful at magic and madness which was of course the Craig Hamilton miniseries really uh, he's a master tactician and nautical genius and his helmet allows him to breathe underwater now I have a question for you Rob do you prefer the classic 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 version of Orm Ocean Master, or do you prefer the one where he is an Atlantean, like in the modern era, you know, like the Throne of Atlantis types version? The, the former. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think I think the idea that Ocean Master is jealous of his father, jealous of his brother, because his brother had special powers, and his father could not but help but favor Arthur over his more ordinary son, I think is perfect drama, and you don't need to add to it. I think the version that they showed... Uh, in the flashbacks in the camo suit miniseries is perfect in that um, Tom Curry just could not quite bring himself to love his son. 
the same way he loved Arthur because of how could he? Because his, his his older son was could breathe underwater and do all these amazing things, and his other son was just merely ordinary, and that's his crime is that he was just <laughs> merely ordinary. I think that's such a great simple hook that you didn't need all this foo-fara on top of it. Well, when you do it that way, I mean, it's really quite poetic. So, okay. Uh, written by Bob Greenberger here this entry. And if you want more on Aquaman, you should check out the Aquaman Shrine Twitter account, run by our buddy Joe, where you can check out the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast, where you can hear about Aquaman quite often. And I will promise that we will be covering the Kurt Swan drawn miniseries at some point. And I promise you'll have a guest host that episode. <laughs> we will. I, you and I have to talk off air. I've made plans. Oh, God. I can't talk about Peter David, but we have to talk about that thing? <laughs> can't we do the Craig Hamilton one first? <laughs> Please? All right. Anyway. Um, wow. Way to spring that on me. Bring the night down. Okay. <laughs> Up next is Orion from The New Gods. Not that you can tell by the entry. Um, he's – all right. First of all, the art's by Paris Collins and uh, Will Bleiberg, which is – they're great artists. It's, it's put together well. It's laid out well. It's artistically rendered well, except you look at this and you go, who the hell is that? Because this is some weird-ass costume that Orion wore. He went through weird costume phases. You know, like teenagers go through awkward phases in their youth. Uh, it's like he went through a lot of weird costume phases. He went through one in the 70s when Jerry Conway was writing him. He went through one here with Paris Collins. I have no idea what the hell he's wearing right now. Uh, I, I can't even find a reference to it online. There's nothing, no mention of it in the entry either. Why he and there's, he's not on the covers wearing this thing either. So I don't know what the hell this is about. It's a weird red, white, and blue. <laughs> what do you think of it? Um, now that I've been really complimentary, <laughs> it's it's pretty goofy. His face is like um, six one hundred ninety five. No sir. Uh, no, there's no way that I weigh more than Orion. Um, you know what? It would have been interesting, and I, I'd say why maybe they didn't do this, but I think it would have been cool if this shot had been the reverse of Darkseid. If it had been uh, Orion hunched over a fire, quietly pondering his father's image in the fire. I think that would have been neat. That would, because we see kind of reverse images of them in the insets. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but so it kind of pairs them up, but I think it would have been neat if they had coordinated that maybe not get Mark Badger to do it, but get another artist and say, Hey guys do the same layout, but just from reverse angles. That might've been cool. That would have been cool. Huh. And, uh, the, in the inset pictures, he's not wearing that weird funky costume. So I don't know what that's about. Anyway, yeah. um, the ent- the entry itself is almost word for word, the same as the dark side piece. Um, the only things they really go on to extra is about Orion. He is basically he battles with his rage. He's the champion of new Genesis, but they talk about the whole peace treaty and dark side and all that stuff. So I don't need to go into that. Uh, the text is written by Mark Wade. And again, no real new gods place for me to send you folks. So maybe, maybe someday. So. All right. Up next is Rock Crin, who is from the Legion of Superheroes and used to go by the name Cosmic Boy. And the reason I know that is because the front of the entry has Legion of Superheroes and it has the Cosmic Boy logo. So <laughs> uh, I don't know why they felt the need to include that kind of stuff. Um, I, I guess because someone like you, Rob, would be like, I don't know who the hell this guy is. Uh, maybe well, that's the Cosmic they... Boy logo was was helpful. Really? It's, you don't think that's too much? Well, I'm saying if I didn't know who it was, I'd be yeah. like, oh, it's Cosmic Boy. Okay. Well. It's, if you've read the 5YL era of Legion, you're going to love this entry. It's by Keith Giffen and Al Gordon. It is absolutely beautiful and perfectly representative of that era. It's basically rock. He's standing in a, just a complete hovel, wherever he is, and he's all dirty and messy, and he's wearing his trench coat, and he's kind of got his arm resting on something and holding up his head like, ugh, what a day. And then behind him is basically like an iPad, which they used to use this iconography in the Legion a lot, where they would show this sort of iPad image and there'd be something on there. In this case, like Rob said, showing the Cosmic Boy logo from his miniseries. Anyway, Rock Crin, of course, was Cosmic Boy. Uh, he's from the planet Brawl, 
And he had these magnetic powers, uh, and they developed on that planet to help them protect themselves from these metallic beasts. Anyway, at age 14, he was a champion of this game called Magnoball. So he was coming to Earth, and on his way, he met Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl. Uh, you might have heard of them. And they ended up saving R.J. Brand's life on the trip, who was the galaxy's wealthiest man. Now, R.J. Brand happened to be a big admirer of the 20th century hero Largand, known as Valor. Now, that's a retcon, folks. Used to be R.J. Brand was enamored with Superboy. But in this era, just after um, Legion of Superheroes number six, everything had changed, and now he was enamored with Valor. Anyway, he, uh, he decided that, you know what, kids, in the spirit of that, why don't we establish a, a group of teenage superheroes? They became the Legion. Eventually, he goes on to marry Night Girl. And then after the old series, basically what happened was the old series ended, they said there was a five-year gap, which is why it's called Five Years Later. And all basically the whole universe went to hell in those five years. Everything fell apart. And so you're left with a lot of questions. And one of the questions here is we know that Rock was drafted into a war versus the uh, the planet Imsk, which is the people who can shrink, shrinking violet. So there was a war between the magnetic people and the shrinking people. And he was in the war, and there was a horrible battle at something called Venado Bay, is all you know at this point. And he lost his powers there. And that was a big thing hanging over his head throughout the whole series of what happened to Venado Bay. And eventually they do tell us. But uh, it was really, really exceptionally done. Anyway, I mentioned before there are a legion of superheroes number 10 right now. So what do you, what do you think of this one, buddy? Uh, yeah, I just passed right over this at the time because I was like, wow, you've taken characters I already don't care much about and then make them even less interesting to look at. Wow, okay, sign me up. Uh, so, <laughs> oh my God, I hate you so much. I will, you know what? I think I'd probably su- surprise you to tell you that I bought the Cosmic Boy miniseries at the time. I did. Eh. Eh. Well, okay. Doing my you buy best a five year later comic. You buy a five year later comic, then we'll talk. <laughs> oh, I'm, I didn't, sorry, I didn't meet your approval. <laughs> you really do, don't worry. Anyway, uh, for more on Cosmic Boy, check out the Legion of Super Bloggers. Up next is Rob's character he picked for the uh, In Stock Trades ad, Scarecrow, arched by George Pratt. And I had to look it up. He had been working on the Batman book at this time, off and on, so I didn't realize where he connected to it. Why don't you describe the drawing to people since you liked it so much? Very nice drawing. The logo, eh, but the, the, the drawing itself is great. And it's just what you would expect. It's the Scarecrow. As a scarecrow sitting in a field somewhere, and he's guys surrounded by, uh, he's covered in the, at the bottom, he's got barbed wire around him and all these sort of dead roots. Um, Coloring-wise, I wish they had gone with something a little more moody. It's a little too uh, garish, I'd say, from my taste, mm-hmm. like the sky and stuff. I wish they had gone just maybe something a little more simple. But other, other than that, I really like it. I, I said, I think the scarecrow is one of the great Batman villains. Um, I think he's underrated. I, for many years, I was like, why don't they put him in one of the movies? And then, of course, Christopher Nolan sort of made him the linchpin, not the linchpin, but the uh, ongoing motif of his trilogy because mm-hmm. he appears in all three movies. Um, yep. I like the the instant where he's scaring Batman. We see Batman holding his, holding his head like he's in terror. And then we see him <laughs> with the Injustice League. And I, yeah. love, I love how he creeps out Kronos and Libra, and they're both just kind of staring straight ahead, like, don't look at him, I don't want to talk to him, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> like, that, that's that's the read I get from it. So, uh, I always... That's, I, that, that's the one that's sort of, like, Libra? Really? The I Libra Injustice Libra, gang? Libra, that's weird. Big member, Libra. Uh, but no, I really, I really dig this, and this is another one of those things where you read the first appearance and you're like, huh? World's Finest Comics number three? Like, why, huh? How did he appear there? But yet he did. I... I I've always dug this character. I think he's just one of the great bad villains. Well, I, I love the drawing too. It's 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 the look that he had basically in Challenge of the Super Friends, but done to like a creepy, like taking it up seven notches to creepy. Right, right. Um, I like the logo by the way, where it's kind of like looks almost either like pieces of straw or like just scratchy writing. I, I think the logo looks pretty good. Anyway, um, 
you know, of course, we. I don't need to go on a lot of details. Jonathan Crane, we all know it. It's sort of the uh, Sleepy Hollow sort of thing. And he's very creepy, and he's lanky, and he's weird, socially awkward, academic, all that. He uses fear gas. But um, really, really a cool piece done by Mark Wade. And uh, I agree, very underrated character. And again, I love – this is my favorite Scarecrow look, the this Challenge of the Super Friends look when it's done really creepy. So um, let's see what else. It, Going on it, at this it, point – It mentions that he prefer he's so – uh, into his research that he all the money he steals goes back to his research so he's not he's he's not a classic batman vil- classic batman villain and that he's stealing to enrich himself he's stealing because he wants to learn more about how to scare the bejesus out of people yeah yeah it explains why he's so so, so uh you know messy all the time too uh, now, in the Batman books at this point, they were on Batman number 452 and Detective 619, and they basically – they had just finished up or working on the uh, the Dark Knight, Dark City storyline. If I remember right, that's the one where they introduce uh, the Gotham design. I think that's the one where they introduce the Gotham designs from the movie, end of the comic. Um, oh, okay. I, I think. I could have that wrong. But also going on, Tim Drake's mom had just died by uh, the Obadiah Man or whatever he was called, you know, the, the Haitian villain. And not too long from now, he's going to play a role in Tim Drake becoming Robin, actually. Scarecrow will. So pretty cool. Now, stepping up from just being the protege of Batman to eventually getting the costume officially and becoming Robin from then on. So, all right. Uh, for more on Scarecrow, you should check out the Batman Nightcast right here on our own network with uh, Ryan and Chris. So, uh, up next is Sinestro, uh, another villain done by Joe Staten and uh, got to flip the page here. Terribly sorry, and Mark Nelson, and it's a shot of Sinestro floating in space. It's. I have a off again, on again love affair with Joe Staten. Uh, I think Joe Staten was at absolute peak of his power in the '70s, not so much into the '80s. Um, there's there's a lot to love about this drawing, and there's a lot not to love. If you just accept it as cartoony, he looks pretty great. I mean, the line works really strong. The yellow around his, you know, the the, the outline of his suit and the way his costume and the way his face is depicted is pretty great. But if you want to see the Sinestro that looks like a human, you're not going to see it here. Like, what do you? You're a Staten lover. What do you think of this? <laughs> I'm a Staten lover. I know I do. I love Joe Staten's artwork. I always have, uh, and he can uh, turn up uh, the dial on his cartooniness or turn it down, whatever project uh, requires it. Like Dick Tracy, which he's currently drawing, is more cartoony mm-hmm. than some of his other stuff. Um, and I, but I love his work, and so I think I've been almost uniformly positive since the beginning. This is too cartoony. He just went too far. Sinestro just looks too scrawny. His head is too big. It's just, it doesn't radiate that he's this big evil guy. Uh, especially when you realize that, like, in the movie, they tried to make him, like, the big bad of the Green Lantern movie, and they tried to make him the big bad of Blackest Night. Of course, that's all after this. But uh, he, he's just too silly looking. Uh, to me, Green Lantern would be like, come on, what are you kidding me? Just knock this nerd over. So, and, and I, again, Joe Staten love his work, but this is just, I, I just don't think the approach was exactly the right thing. Yeah. Uh, text is written by Bob Greenberger. A um, couple highlights. You know, he's the first Green Lantern to ever be corrupted. He uh, he trained Hal Jordan, of course. He's a master tactician and superior combatant. Uh, of course, he has the yellow ring from the Weaponers Accord, which is their version of the Green Lantern ring. And now at this point, the Green Lantern series had just relaunched, which was like the uh, the Gerard Jones, uh, Mark Bright version. And so they were all on, only on issue number three. So Emerald Dawn had already come out, and Sinestro played a role in there. But Emerald Dawn 2 was still about nine months away, where Sinestro played an even bigger role. So that was on the foreground, uh, in the, and, you know, ahead of them. So if you want more on Sinestro, you should check out the Green Lantern uh, podcast called Lantern Cast with our buddy little Chad Bokelman. All right. Up next, one of my favorite entries in the book. I absolutely adore this. It's Stanley and His Monster by Phil Foglio and uh, Keith Wilson. 
it, it's this it's this giant purple monster who looks a lot like um, Sully from uh, oh, Monsters uh, from Inc. Monsters Inc. Except he's magenta colored. Is the best way to describe him. And riding him is this five year old boy dressed up like a cowboy. He's riding him like a like a horse. He's having a good old time. They're in their backyard playing. I freaking love this. Now I have a lot to say on it, but what what, what do you think of the drawing? Oh, I love it too. I think it's great. I mean, Stanley and his monster. They had just done a mini series. Uh, which is surprisingly wrong, but go ahead. What do you mean? Okay, I, I wanted you to do the drawing first, but okay. Um, the miniseries doesn't come out for another three years. Really? Isn't that crazy? Oh my god, I didn't. I, are you really? That's what okay. my, my research shows. I was All sure right. the miniseries would come out too. Because I mean, right? it's the same team. It's the. I know. I know. That's wow, why I'm like, you were way ahead of this curve. Now, then okay. It, it's possible comic book database is wrong. But when I did my research, it said 1993 was when the miniseries came out. I'm like, they waited three. They, Phil Fogler held on to that pitch for three years. Anyway, go ahead. Huh. Okay. Well, anyway, no, I think it's great. I, I did. I always like Stan Lee's monster. Uh, I love the little factoid of them that they first appeared in Fox and the Crow, number mm-hmm. 95, is that they eventually, they were a backup feature in Fox and the Crow and grew so popular that they pushed Fox and the Crow out of their own book. Because really? Of, yes, because eventually Fox and the Crow changed its title to Stanley and its monster and his monster. Oh my you gosh! Look at the, you look at the number Stanley and his monsters like final issue is like 112. You're like, wait a minute, how did they do 112 issues? Well, they didn't. They took over the numbering of Fox and the Crow. So Fox and the Crow gave them a home, and then for their trouble, they got kicked out of their own title. Oh my gosh! Oh, that's great. Well, if you're not familiar with the with the story, now I've never read the originals. I would love to. Uh, I don't know they're, if they've been collected. They're anywhere. fun. They're really fun. But at least the version from the 90s, it's basically Calvin and Hobbes, yeah. except Hobbes isn't a tiger. He's a monster, More again, in the, in the scheme of Sully. He's, he's a high demon from hell who apparently has been contaminated by good. And he's just fun. He's lovable, exactly like you'd want him to be. He hides under Stanley's bed, things like that. Absolutely adorable. Lots of fun. Um, and, and, and really, again, near as I can tell, they were building towards this miniseries that they had to get permission to do. So uh, I got I to gotta dig this thing back up out of my long boxes because I loved this thing. Because, I mean, really, Foglio had to have been inspired by Calvin and Hobbes at this point. I mean, that had to be what was going on what, to bring this back. They've done other things with Stanley and his monster, like Green Arrow. Kevin Smith did some really so like more mature, twisted theme kind of stuff with it when he uh, brought Oliver back to, uh, back to life. But, you know. Whatever. All right. Up next, some guy in blue tights. Uh, he's got red underwear on the outside. Named Superman. Dun, dun, dun. Now, this is also the cover of the entry, cover of the whole book. Uh, I told you we'd talk about the cover later. This is the cover. It's Superman. He's flying uh, upwards across the screen. Behind him is the Daily Planet, the LexCorp building, the WGBS building. You know, it's obviously the setting of Metropolis. Art here is by Jerry Ordway. Jerry, the extraordinary Ordway, or there is a wrong way and there's an Ordway, however you want to say it. <laughs> I like that one better, actually. Um, what do you think of the drawing? Oh, it's great. I think it's a great drawing. Uh, I, I mean, it's, I think Jerry Ordway is, I would put him in... Top three greatest Superman artists of all time, easily. Really? Yeah, I would. I think he's. I think his version is this uh, nice combo of the classic sort of beefy Wayne Boring Superman versus with kind of a modern sheen to it. I think it's great. I like the drawing. It's got a monthly plan. I like that the background is kind of monochromatic. Uh, it's all just in blacks and yellows, pretty much, which is you know kind of reminds me of the classic Who's Who. My only beef is weird coloring for the logo. What is with the magenta orange Superman logo? That's like, hmm. that's really weird colors. Other than that, I dig it. I think it's great. I mean, it's, you know, the one downside to doing a, a central image as opposed to the classic zoo is that you don't get to do as much of the history. 
you know, you're, you're stuck to just Superman flying as opposed to being able to show him doing 27 different things from the 70 years of adventures he's had. And we get to see a little bit of it on the, on the uh, back page, but, but still, it would have been neat to see, you know, the whole history of the character the way we got in the older versions. I... I don't hate the drawing at all. I like the drawing. It's just not my favorite. There's something about the chest and the face that's just never sat right with me. Maybe it's the bright white shading on it. I I can't put my finger on it, but it's never been my favorite drawing. I, I've seen many a jury orderway drawing of Superman, which are phenomenal. Uh, for me, you talk about top artists. I mean, I, uh, John Byrne and, and Dan Jurgens are kind of my Superman artists as far as I'm concerned. But um, I still like it. It's just not my favorite image. And so the, that's kind of why the cover has never been one of my favorite covers. Um, I'd love to hear Michael Bailey's perspective on this. Leave that, a comment in the messages for us, folks. I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts. All right, so you flip it over. Uh, of course, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Uh, the, the, the story here written by Peter Sanderson. This is a really tough one because if you think about it, you get, you know, they've had to provide the same amount of history for Superman as they did Stanley and his monster. <laughs> you know, so they, they, they had to condense 70 years of stuff right here, or I guess at this point it's what, hey, uh, 1990s was less than that. But, um, you know, they talk about uh, him being uh, – one of the interesting things they mentioned is Justice League America as a reserve member because, you know, post-crisis, he's not part of the Justice League. Oh, <laughs> Of course, they do the first appearance thing like you said about Mom Pa Kent, which is nice. They talk about the Man of Steel version of his origin. Uh, they do spend some time talking about the whole pocket universe and how he killed the trio of Kryptonians and then how he went into exile and he met Mongol and he agreed to never to kill again. And under his powers, they do talk about a few of his probably lesser-known powers from the post-crisis era, how he had a force field around his body, which kept his clothes from tearing. So that's why he could wear regular clothes, and they not tear, and yet his cape always tore because it wasn't close to his body. Um, they talk about when he flew in space, he could hold his breath for hours, but he could not just breathe in space. He still had to have an oxygen supply. Uh, and then in the images, you see he's melting that lead pipe, um, but one thing in his eyes glowing red, one of the things you notice is there's no beams coming out of his eyes. That was a post-crisis thing, at least yeah. for a while. Yeah. They overturned that eventually, but where he didn't have beams coming out of his eyes, his eyes just glowed. So yeah, but uh, in, the, in general, the text is written really well. It's, it's of course you know, it's Superman, so it's fantastic. And this is this is Superman at the height of his powers, guys. 1990, you know, he's engaged to Lois at this point. Uh, it's just really, really great time to be a fan of Superman. And uh, Superman, oh, I'm sorry, he's not engaged to Lois. Oh, my mistake, he won't be engaged to Lois for another four issues. My bad, I'm so sorry. Because uh, they're on Superman number 46 and Adventures Superman number 469 at this point. And as I mentioned before, from crisis to crisis, it's really a great place to catch all your pre-crisis Superman, or post-crisis Superman stuff. I wonder how of all the powers they chose Heat Vision to be the one that they show. <laughs> he had like 75 powers. They're like, well, uh, <laughs> Heat Vision. Super Breath? No. How about super, the, super ventriloquism? How no. about the finger, finger lasers? No? All right, let's do heat and vision. Okay, it's cool. Finger lasers? What are you talking about? <laughs> it was a movie. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Uh, you know, if someone were to do a minute podcast about that movie, I might know. But anyway. Um, Probably. Ne- <laughs> next up is The Time Masters, and art by Art T. Bear. And this is Rip Hunter's team, and it, it, he's, it's a really clever design. They're basically, it's him and his team running across clock faces and sundials, which is really great. You got him in the front uh, running hand-in-hand with uh, a woman named Bonnie Baxter. Behind him are some of the other members of the team, and they're running towards the camera, and it's his Time Masters. Which, what, what do you think of the drawing? It's, it's fine. I, it, it, this is not a knock, but it, remind, it looks like something that um, you would show to a network if you're trying to pitch the Time Masters TV series. It okay. feels like it has that kind of presentation sort of feel to it. You're like, Time Masters, syndicated, after Star Trek Next Generation. Um, yeah, I'm not, not... It's not a bad thing in 1990. <laughs> no, no, it would not be. No, I, I'm really not familiar with this at all. I never read it. Um, I didn't know that, like, 
like it's funny that Rip Hunter is in fact so ripped. Like he is like super <laughs> muscular, and the 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 uh, skin tones are kind of oddly yellowish. Like look like everybody's got hepatitis or something. But a little washed out. Yeah. Uh, but but it's nice that it's it's postery. You know, it takes it takes full advantage of the the full page uh, concept. Yep, RT Bear was great at this point. Um, really, I feel it was a miss that Marvel. I mean, sorry, that DC missed him. He was supposed to do a Nightwing miniseries at one point, not too long around this time, and they missed out on that. Uh, he went over to Marvel. Uh, great artist, really enjoyed his stuff. And um, the, the Time Master series at this point, the Time Master miniseries is actually still on the shelves. Number seven, which I think was the final issue, was on the shelves at, at this time when this came out. So it's revealing to you different things about the team. You've got uh, Rip Hunter. You've got um, oh wait, I don't see all the names. Okay, never mind. They're all here somewhere. But um, <laughs> one of the, it's right, here's what I remember. Because bear in mind, folks, it's me, and you know who I am. My name's irredeemable. Whatever. The thing that always stuck with me about Time Masters was when I read this comic, I was what is this 1990 for the Time Masters? So I was uh, 18 years old, I guess, uh, 17 years old, something like that. And it, the very first issue has this girl Bonnie. She is like trying to seduce a guy and she's crawling across a school desk in like lingerie and like it, it to this day it's like bothered me i'm like why is this one i think he was a married man too if i remember right I'm like what what why is this happening you know it just bothered me a lot and it's always stuck to me to this day anyway and it was hot of course but um sorry that's just a little personal anecdote there for you to take home and put under your pillow at night anyway the deal is in the post-crisis universe time travel was really hinky you could travel in time through various methods but you could only use that method of travel once so if you traveled in rip hunter's time bubble to the future you were stuck there you could not come home through the time bubble you were done you could never travel through the time bubble ever again other people could but you couldn't there was just this weird thing you'd only travel through time in one method once uh, so they travel. They happen to travel to the future at one point in the 25th century. They find out there's a nuclear war which destroys the world. So they want they come they, they figure out a way to come back using a different method. And they want to protect the world. Well, Rip can't travel in time anymore because he doesn't have any more time machine type stuff. So he gathers a group of people. That's who these people are. His agents to travel through time. And they're battling the Illuminati. And Cave Carson's involved. He's his financial backer. I, I think he's the one that uh, Bonnie Baxter is trying to seduce. Actually, I think that she's his mistress. But anyway, so they end up developing more time travel methods, and then that's kind of what happens. And they be, uh, and at this point, Rip Hunter was already tied in with Booster Gold, which would then lead to, uh, of course, you know, more stuff down the line with the Booster Gold series. So if you want more on the Time Masters, you can check out the Silver and Gold podcast featuring. Um, uh, Blue, uh, sorry, Captain Adam and, and um, Booster Gold with our buddies Jay and Roy, or you can check out the Boosterific blog. Both great places. And uh, by the way, the, uh, I should have mentioned the text here is written by Lewis Shiner, so that's a, a different name to be appearing here. Yeah, I I who is that? I should have looked it up. He probably was writing the Time Master miniseries, but I didn't look that one up, folks. I meant to. Terribly sorry. So now I'm going to get hate mail about how Shag's not prepared for who's who. All right. Uh, final entry in the book, kind of, kind is of. Wotan. From the Doctor uh, Doctor Fate villain, art by Jay Geldof. So Rob, the, so he's sitting here on a, on like a tree, basically a tree branch, and he's surrounded by skulls and all kinds of magical artifacts, and he's got you know cool stuff coming out of his hand. Like, what do you think of this drawing? Oh, I dig it. I like Jay Geldof. Uh, it's an unusual choice uh, for a DC comic at all. Yes. So yes. Uh, it is very stylized. I could see why you might be like, I don't know. But I dig it because it's weird and strange. And uh, I like that the tree is bleeding. It's got a knife stuck in it, and yet it's bleeding. Oh, wow. Which I think is fun. We see a little voodoo doll stuck to the thing. It's, it's got a lot more humor in it than you would have expected from a Spectre villain. And, I mean, my God, first appearance, Morphine Comics, number 55, May 1940. 
yep. he, he predates Wonder Woman for Pete's sakes. I mean, oh that's my gosh. how far back this guy goes. And we see him taking on Dr. Fate and the Spectre, so you know he's a heavy hitter. So I, yep. I like it. I love the drawing. I think it's so cool. I think this is a great usage of the page. Uh, he really understood how big he could to draw this and fill the page. I think it's very creepy and weird and magic and mystical and freaky, which is what it should be when it gets to this kind of weirdo magic. Uh, I think it's expertly done. Now, I had to look up Jake Eldoff. Obviously, you knew who he was. I did not. Uh, he, he had no connection to DC Comics, really. was best known for doing Badger, Nexus, and Grendel. So, do you remember when? Cool uh, do you remember when uh, they redid first comics? Ah, wow, first comics redid classics illustrated. Do you remember those when they yeah, brought that series absolutely. back? Absolutely. He did the adaptation of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, I believe. Ooh, really I bet he'd be good. great at that. Yeah, he was great. That, that was a great series. So, uh, yeah, it he was, really was. Yep. So didn't Sinkevich do Moby Dick? Moby Dick, I want to say. I believe so. Yeah, that was and a lot of John cool K. Schneider the third did one of them too. I mean, just really cool, edgy artists. Yeah, there's some a lot of neat stuff there. That was awesome. So the gist of Wotan is, uh, ages ago, Wotan was actually a female sorcerer and looking for ways to extend her life. And she found ways to reincarnate herself into new bodies. That's how she changes gender. And over the thousands of years, she ended up taking the name Wotan, but with no actual connection to the uh, German or Norse god. But always seeking power, ended up clashing with Dr. Fate during World War II. Eventually, in the 1980s, Wotan captured Naboo, who was now uh, the Dr. Fate entity, who was now in Kent Nelson's body. And in India, Wotan defeated and uh, was, was defeated and was blinded by this unknowable force, possibly love. It all had to do with the Dr. Fate series at that point. It was really very moving, very powerful. And Wotan was blinded and was now dedicated to peace at this point. Really, really powerful, powerful stuff. That I, I've, I've talked about a lot. J.M. DiMatteis and Sean McManus series. Dr. Fate, so good. And that's where Wotan, all that happened to him. Really, really great stuff. Um, Dr. Fate at this point was on issue number 19. Uh, McManus and DiMatteis would stay until issue 24. So really you should check that out, folks. Anyway, if you want more on Dr. Fate, you should check out the, uh, or, or Wotan, the Ed Morris podcast, Lords of Order. So good stuff. And you can pick up any of the Wotan clan albums. Absolutely. He featured prominently, I think, in the second album, if I remember right. But um, All right. I said we were almost done with the entries, kind of, because there is one more, folks. It's, it's not listed in the alphabetic order on the cover, but they do mention it. They even say extra fold-out map of Atlantis by Esteban Moroto, who was doing Atlantis Chronicles at this point. Now, I will tell you there's a bit of a misprint here, because if you look at the categories, red for hero, black for villain, all that, there should be a green border on this one for geography. They missed it on this one. That's okay. I'll forgive them this time. But uh, as you fold it out, it is three pages long. Rob, why don't you describe the uh, the, the drawing to, to the people? I want to actually measure this thing here. Go ahead. Well, it's a, I, first of all, I appreciate the uh, format-busting nature of it, that we get a, a fold-out centerfold, which is something the original Who's Who could never do. Uh, but we have, this is kind of a trip to its image, uh, where each panel has kind of its own action going on, and then it can, you know, it's compri- it, it makes up one whole giant image, but you can look at three separate pieces, and we see all the, a lot of various characters from the Atlantis Chronicles, we see the domed uh, city on the, kind of on the left, and then in the center is Aquaman, surrounded by some of his Finny friends. Of course, he himself only appears in the Atlantic Chronics, Atlantic, Atlantis Chronicles maxi-series on the very last page of the book. Right. Um, and then there's another shot of some of the, 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 the mer-Atlantis uh, Atlantis citizens swimming around. And actually, some of them have legs, too, but we see a lot of the, the mermaid ones. Uh, and the other part of the, the, the more ancient ruins of the city. It's a beautiful piece. And Atl- I love Atlantis Chronicles, as I've said on the show. Not a fan of Peter David's Aquaman, yet I love Atlantis Chronicles. Like, Atl- Atlantis Chronicles, if Game of Thrones did not exist, Atlantis Chronicles could be, like, 
the HBO series, except it would be featured around Aquaman. So we're all yeah. so, kind of sorry that Game of Thrones is even a thing because it could have <laughs> been this. Atlantis Chronicles is a brilliant, brilliant series, and I'm glad they gave it this much love. I mean, for them to give it a this much copy, it gets more copy than Superman, and to mm. get to get a three page pullout is like let's really go to town on this thing. And so, God bless DC Comics for doing it. It's great. By the way, I measured it. It's nearly two feet across. And, of course, up to down, it's almost a foot. So, really, the scans you're going to see on our website, don't do it justice, guys. When you open this thing physically in front of you, it is, wow. It is, we used to talk about kapow moments. This is very much a kapow moment. And Esteban Moroto is just an incredible artist. So beautiful detail. Now, by the way, you'll notice this thing, this cover does not have the Comics Code Authority printed on it because there's boobies in here, Rob. There are boobies. Uh, there are topless uh, mermaids in here, <laughs> which you Atlanta, don't. Atlantis Chronicles had nudity in it for yep. a DC, you know, superhero in, in universe superhero movie. Uh, movie, I'm sorry, comic book. Uh, pretty unique. Yep. Now my notes sort of echo Rob's a lot. I want to just follow up on the Game of Thrones comment. I mean, think, guys, this thing has brother versus bo- brother, magic, romance, rape, monsters, tragedy, triumph. It, I mean, it really, it's, it runs the whole gambit. It and really the qu- is quest that. for power. It's all about who's yeah. going to run things. Exactly. That's true. Very right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and the history here does retell sort of Arion, Lord of Atlantis, his role with Atlantis, talks about the Atlantis Chronicles, talks about – then it goes into beyond Atlantis Chronicles and talks about the Legend of Aquaman one-shot where it tells Aquaman's origin, goes into that. And it really covers kind of the whole thing. Now, I, I've asked this question before, I'm sure, Rob, but I'm going to have to ask it again. Atlantis is in the Pacific Ocean. Why? What do you mean? Oh, well, because Atlantis. Yeah, I know. Uh, well – that's a good question. Um, I guess because there's more space out there, like you could more accurately kind of hide it than you can in the Atlantic. There's, you know, I mean, it's probably a little easier to find Atlantis if you're going from the Jersey coast <laughs> uh, all the way over there. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Don't, don't. I'm, pretty sure the, I'm pretty sure the Atlas of the DC Universe put it in, it, in the Atlantic. But anyway, okay. Well, <laughs> the, the, we, we all know those DC cities have all kinds of crazy locations. Hey, don't be knocking Paul Kupperberg, all right? He wrote that, so it's it's gospel as far as me and Cisco are concerned. No, I know, but. I know, I appreciate it. So uh, in the two cities you talked about, they do show Poseidonus and Tritonus, which is worth mentioning as well. So um, again, you know, Aquaman, the, mini, uh, the, the, the Atlantis Chronicles was on the shelves. The Aquaman miniseries from 1989 was over. The 1991 ongoing series was uh, still 16 months away. So again, check out the Aquaman Shrine on Twitter and check out Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. We should do, you know what? I got a better idea. Rather than doing the Kurt Spawn miniseries, can we do Atlantis Chronicles? Well, I definitely would want to do Atlantis Chronicles at some point. No doubt. Okay. Well, folks, that is issue number one. You get the, the back cover I've already covered, which is Michael Urie sort of explaining what uh, what this iteration of Who's Who was and how it came to be. And in the very back, it has just an ad for the issue, you know, all-new 16-issue limited series, quality paper, offset printing, and it gives you sneak peeks of Darkseid, Kono, uh, Rock Crin, Fire, Kane and Abel, and Ma and Pa can't see that. There you go. Rob, this is showing you that, you know, everyone knows who Darkseid is. It's telling you Legion of Superheroes was a big seller. It's telling Just League International is a big seller. Sandman's a big seller, and Superman's a big seller. That's what the back's telling you right here. Right. So, see? All right. And, and well, can, folks, I, can I, can I, well, before we wrap up, oh, can yeah, I say, I can't think, I can't think of a single typo that we found. So, Ooh. good job, Arlene Lowe. Very, well, excellent. That's quite a compliment <laughs> coming from Rob, who's a big stickler on these things. <laughs> good job, Miss Lowe. All right, folks, we are going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we have some fun feedback. I have been soliciting for the last couple years some information from you guys about (laughs) the Loose Leaf Edition, and we are going to talk about it right after this break. 
Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Helfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? I uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC events, as in the comic books. DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Oh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very... Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, the Genesis? Uh, not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So, maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What? What, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my I'll check my timetable. Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Dr. Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mr. Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Okay, folks, we are back. And we are, before we talk about the feedback, I do want to cover, we have a couple of ads we wanted to mention that come from the Who's Who product. I'm um, sorry, that come from Who's Who that we're in, running in comics promoting the series. And uh, in fact, Rob, why don't you tell the folks home, we're going we're gonna to take uh, these ads as well as a handful of images from this edition of Who's Who and put them on our website. Why don't you tell people where they can find those? That is fireandwaterpodcast.com, of course. That's right. Go up to the Shows button and click Who's Who, and you'll find that there. I should have told you guys at the top of the show so you could have followed along. Terribly sorry. You've probably been here before. Hopefully you figured out how this works by now. If not, catch up, okay? I mean, seriously. Anyway, um, the two ads that we want to check out, the first one says... Uh, who's who in the DC universe? And it's got it's got basically the, it's the cover image from the first binder is what it is. It's got the George Perez image of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Aqu- and I'm sorry, and not Aquaman. Oh, 
that was <laughs> cheap and flash. <laughs> oh man. That was uh, what, what, I guess something you want to say about that, Rock? This image is invalid. Because Aquaman's not in it? Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. Uh, it says, who's who? The most flexible presentation of who's who information ever. A variety of DC superstars by the industry's top artists, 24 and different entries per pack, 24 stunning full-page illustrations, and it goes on to all the details of it, which is great. And, and this is how someone like myself, who didn't have my head buried in a Kubrick school book, found out that this who's who was coming and found out it was going to be in this format. I was so excited about this. And then the, uh, the second ad is a subscription ad for Who's Who. And uh, basically, you can save a whole bunch of money by subscribing. And they use the fire entry by Adam Hughes <laughs> to get your attention. Shipped to you in a plain brown wrapper. <laughs> so it gives you all the details on how to subscribe. And you can save yourself $20.20. Oh, look at that for subscribing for a year. Very nice. Now, a uh, quick thank you to Michael Bailey, who, who uh, was the first person to send us a copy of these ads. Uh, several other people did as well. So thanks to all of you all as well. Uh, uh, we really Really appreciate it. I have one comment about the subscription ad mm-hmm. in that it's funny that they would offer a subscription because, of course, I would say that this iteration of Who's Who is appealing most directly to collectors, clearly. Who else but a collector is going to bother to, like, color code their characters and get a special binder and do a – and yet you're going to let people subscribe to them where, as we all know, comics that come via subscription tend to be completely destroyed by indifferent mail carriers – so well. it seems funny to me that, like, the most collector series in the world would be bought via subscription. I would think that – I would imagine that overlap was zero. All right. See, I'm going to argue with you there. You had to do that. Um, I think you're putting your own bias on it. I don't think of it as collector at all because, in fact, I think it's the antithesis of collector because you have to rip it open to enjoy it. So, therefore, the values immediately drop the minute you open the all package right, because not, it's shrink-wrapped. All right. Well, hold on. I'll change the – maybe not collector – but definitely, you're like a hardcore fan. Yes, you're into okay. This. And I would say a hardcore fan does not want his who's who number one all smashed up and shoved into his mailbox. I was going to say, you know this sucker was rolled in order that, to get in your mailbox it, without a doubt. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Okay, well, let's get into your feed, uh, the feedback. Now, uh, oh, actually, I do have one more thing to mention, by the way. Michael Yuri himself, uh, there was a thread over on Facebook in the back issue Forum, our back issue magazine pages, uh, and let's see, um, our buddy Michael O'Brien was kind enough to post something about who's who, and even credited our podcast, was very kind of him to do that, and Michael Yuri chimed in, and he, he wrote in to say, as the editor and co-developer of the loosely version of who's who, here's a little background, I was new at DC when I got this assignment, probably because no one else wanted it, I loved the original who's who for- format, but had the mandate to do a new version and do it differently, the inspiration for the loosely format was the collectible trading cards, image on one side, data on the other, which were enjoying a boom in the late. Uh, at the time, in the late ni- in 1989 and 90, it was fu- it was fun reinventing the format. Who's Who won the Diamond Innovation of the Year Award for 1990, and the project gave me an opportunity to work with a ton of talent, including some Silver and Bronze Age artists. But personally, I still prefer the original Who's Who, even with its retina-damaging yellow dot backgrounds. Look at that. I think he was just too close to his own source material because <laughs> I think that this version of Who's Who is absolutely awesome. Michael, I don't know if you're listening or not, but you deserve all the credit for the uh, the binder edition being so, so very good. Okay. So uh, we're going to go off, start with our iTunes reviews. Of course, we need more iTunes reviews because the show has its own feed now, and it didn't when we started 19 years ago. So we really <laughs> do need new iTunes reviews, but we appreciate the new ones we got. The first one is from Mark C.M. Kyok. C.M. Kyok? I don't know. C-E-C-I-E-M-C-I-O-C-H. Mark, please. I, I, am, I am not your wingman when it comes to pronunciations, right, buddy. I think it's Sim Kyok. I'm going to say that. 
Okay. Found my joy. Rob and Chag often talk about finding your joy, and DC in the 80s is definitely my jam. As I was introduced as a child to a whole universe and multiverse of heroes, the Who's Who series helped me catch up on all the history and characters I didn't know. I poured over this series and do hot moo. Hey, this is quick. For hours, as my parents dropped me off at Walton Books while they went mall shopping. <laughs> Rob's and Shag's show reminds me of all the good times I had back when it was cool for parents to leave their young children in public bookstores for an hour. Thanks for all the hours of entertainment, and I'm looking forward to Star Trek and the Legion episodes. Thank you, Mark. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. They heard from our buddy Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks and also has a show here now on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He said, know your masterworks from your morts. Uh, Rob and Shag ribbing each other and praising or condemning DCB heroes in equal measure never gets old. I'm not even that much of a DC guy, and it's always a blast to listen to. Thank you, Nathaniel. Very nice. Clark Edwards says, so, someone wants a review, huh? This is (laughs) Clark. This is by far the betterest show that these two knobs, Rob and Shag, do together. Sure, they do other shows too, like Fire and Water Podcast and some others, but let's be real, those shows don't compare to who's who. I warmly welcome their playful hatred of one another. Playful? Playful? Uh, yeah. As well as Shag's inane banter. Totally inane. What? On which character is hot. You'll be hard-pressed to find a better, more timely show about 30-year-old comic books. Keep up the good work, guys. <laughs> Clark's an old buddy of mine from the Firestorm fan pod- uh, blog, so thank you, Clark. Good to hear from you, buddy. Uh, we got another review, this time a one-star review. Ouch. <laughs> One star review, dragging, the, reducing the uh, the curve from uh, Jakovny. Disappointing political bias. I tuned into my first episode tonight, a Star Trek-focused episode, and one of the hosts took an off-putting shot at our president. So, I'm out. If you're not bothered by liberal bias, I'll say the hosts are genuinely talented with a solid chemistry. But the subject matter, essentially encyclopedia entries of fictional characters, is tough to make very entertaining if you're not a major DC fanatic like myself. Okay. Um, we contemplated not even mentioning this because, you know, it's, it's not pretty to have somebody slam the show. They're particularly talking about me, of course, because it was a Star Trek episode and I'm sure they're referring to me. Yes, they are. So my comment about this is this, uh, I'm not going to get into whether, uh, Mr. Jacovny, I'm assuming it's a mister, uh, should be offended by my anti-president comment because that's not my, uh, call to make. Uh, I've listened to lots of podcasts where, um, you know, it's been about a, a non-political subject and then someone has made a joke about something or made a comment about something unrelated to the topic that I found offensive. And in a couple cases, I've said, oh, done with that show. And I've never gone back to it because I'm just don't, I just don't want to hear from that person anymore. But the difference is I then did not go on iTunes and leave a one-star review. I simply just stopped listening. And so, frankly, Jacovny, I know you're not listening to this. I think leaving a one-star review because I made a single joke uh, about uh, something that you don't like um, is a dick move. I think it's a real dick move. Um, You are free to not listen to the show, and I am free to do the show the way I want to do it. And, uh, you know, that's really all I have to say about it. If you don't like the show, I mean, clearly... My other shows, my politics are pretty much on my sleeve. I don't bring it into this show as much because I share this show with Shag, and I don't want to drag my stuff, uh, anyone else into my stuff. But I also do think leaving a one-star review based on one little comment is a really jerky thing to do. So I'm sorry you didn't enjoy it, and I think you're missing out on a lot because we're having a lot of fun, as these other reviews will indicate. All right. 
Uh, next review from Triv Triv. I did everything I could to track down to find out who this is. I couldn't. Um, this is best comic podcast ever. As a young man who was equally nerdy for DC Comics and reference material, I worshipped the Who's Who comic series when it was released, and the team of Robin Shag do an expert job of pushing my geeky nostalgia buttons. Knowledgeable, entertaining, likable, Steph self-deprecating, and uh, appropriately joyful, Shag and Rob, notice how I switched the order there, are masterful, masterful hosts deserving such iconic material. Uh, deserving of such iconic material. More please soon. Thank you. Well, there you go, Triv. You had to wait a while, but we're back on track. I did notice how you switched the order, Triv Triv, and you, sir, are my enemy. Uh, (laughs) And finally, we've got a review from my pal Chuck Coletta, who, of course, has been on Film and Water a bunch of times. Great guy. Is is he your buddy? What do you say? Well, yeah, we'll find out in a second why. He's on my my shit list right now. Wonderful comics history. This is a truly fun and informative retrospective look at the history of these characters of the pre-Christ DC Comics universe. Host Tob... And Shag, <laughs> our longtime DC readers who know their stuff and convey their insights on the classic Who's Who series in an engaging and enthusiastic way. If you want to learn more about DC Comics history, this podcast is for you. Highest rating. We all know, I think Chuck, I think Chuck enjoys being the first one to comment on some of these shows, so I think his, his, his desire to get reviews in quickly sometimes is his own worst enemy because he really needed to spell check this one. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, Tob. I think this is a pretty good <laughs> review, personally. I kind of like it, <laughs> especially from your good friend. <laughs> it's very funny. It's very funny. Well, I, I thank I, I thank you, and and uh, I look forward to having Tuck Coletta on the show at another time. <laughs> All right, folks. So, all right, as I talked about before the break, I have been collecting your – and that's the end of our iTunes reviews. Thank you very much, by the way. For those of you who have read, written iTunes reviews, it is sincerely appreciated. It helps raise the profile of the show. And those of you who have not written iTunes reviews yet, um, well, quite frankly, you can go to Apocalypse. But anyway, um, all right. So I have been pulling feedback for the last couple of years, actually. Whenever – just quietly I know. On that's why I'm laughing. Yep. Whenever someone would say how they organized their who's who binders, I'm like, oh, I'm going to save that for a while. And I did, and I've got it all collected, and we're going to do it right now. Uh, and if some of you, it's funny, like Chris Franklin and Michael Bailey have written in on how they collected their binders three different times. So we're only going to kind of piecemeal and pick from what they said. One of them even changed some of the stuff. Like, really? Did you change the way you do your binders? I don't know. Anyway, so we're going to blaze through this fairly quickly. But here we go. My good buddy Philemon president of the Jericho fan club that meets in that treehouse. He wrote in, uh, looking ahead, it occurs to me that you ought to give warning to the faithful listeners that they only have a few months to reorganize their binder edition updates. You know, Philemon, uh, I found that out myself the hard way. I had to reorganize my binders just so I can get through this episode, too. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, as Philemon says, mine are currently organized alphabetically by alignment with heroes and villains in separate binders. Now, see, Rob, you laughed at me at the top of the show and laughed at all of us nerds who like the color codes and all that. People love the color codes and the categories. And you're all like, well, I'm better than you guys. But we all <laughs> love it. So okay. take that. All right. All right. All right. Then we heard from my buddy Tom Panarese from the Pop Culture Affidavit uh, uh, blog and podcast and the In Country podcast. He goes, the 1990 Loose Leaf series coincided with my entry into D.C. in the spring and summer of 1990. Specifically, I began buying Batman and Detective. I remember seeing the first couple issues on the rack of my LCS, but being a poor 13-year-old didn't pick them up. I eventually did, however, start buying the series and collected the whole thing. I put all of my entries into a big binder according to the color-coded categories and alphabetically within those categories. I even hand-wrote dividers on printer paper that had a category name in block letters with a bar drawn and magic marker that corresponded to the color of the category. I love that! 
Uh, he goes on to say, I remember that heroes were on top, followed by villains, supporting cast, supernatural, and then came everything else. The last category was comic book character featuring only one entry, Ambush Bug. <laughs> That's awesome, Tom. I love it. I have no memory. I have no memory of how DC organized some of the characters that toggled back and forth between hero and villain. So I'm interested in finding out when we get to them, like where where they felt it, where they were classified. Well, Frank does later on tell us how some of he felt were misclassified. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the key here as we go through this, folks, is there's no wrong way way to organize your binders, and that's why I love this because there's so many interesting creative ways I never even would have thought of. And you guys are going to hear ways you're going to be like, "Wow, why would someone organize that way? It doesn't make sense to me." But that's the joy of this version. That's one of the awesome things about how customizable it is. Oh, I also I also will say that the color coding <laughs> led to my favorite Who's Who feedback letter. Of all time, of any Who's Who series, and really, yes, we'll get to it. It's the greatest. Okay. It's the greatest letter of all time. Is it Chris seen. Franklin's letter? No, 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 no. Like a letter sent in to the book. Didn't he get one published in Who's Who? Though? Oh, did he? I don't know. I don't remember. Well, that. I, I thought. I thought. I, I know Scott Gardner did. Okay. Scott Gardner's got a letter in one of these issues. I thought Chris uh, did. Right, maybe I'm mis- maybe I'm mistaken. If not, we're going to retcon history and say. Oh my God! I hope that the letter I'm thinking of is Chris Franklin's. <laughs> oh my God! That would be the greatest thing ever. But Chris I doubt is it. Chris is probably spitting his moonshine out. I didn't write into who's who. <laughs> anyway, now that we've insulted one of our best friends, uh, we got a comment from Anthony Durso, the man who does those beautiful custom mango boxes. His recent comment, he, he sent in two comments. There's like an older comment and then a recent one. The recent one is, how do I organize my loose leaves? Two binders. The white one was all of the heroes and supporting characters and the maps. The black one was the villains and the supernatural. And the pocket in the white one was the impact who so. Oh, <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. Well the, done. The, the impacts just kind of get shoved off to the side. Aw. Then we heard from our buddy Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. Now, he also had old comments. Recent comments, more recent comments. <laughs> he likes to talk about it a lot. And he's the one who pointed out Scott Gardner's got a letter published in the, the edition of Who's Who. So we'll have to definitely pay attention to that when we get to the letters page. All right. His recent comment is, uh, so on to something that does matter, how I organize my binders, Who's Who entries. I won't say it's weird because I have a feeling mine will be the strangest of all you discuss. It's fairly straightforward. Mainly I organize it by character and how important the character was to get their own section. It was determined by how many entries were associated with them. Superman and Batman get their own sections because they had characters associated with them. Blue Beetle, not so much. Then it broke down like this. Character, example, Superman. Supporting characters associated with that character. Example, Bibbo, Jimmy, etc. Associated heroes, Newsboy Legion, Linear Men, etc. Villains, Lex, Brainiac, Doomsday, Supernatural, Blaze, Technology, Fortress of Solitude, Geography, Krypton. So there you yeah. go. That's kind of that kind of makes sense in its own weird kind of way. I mean, mm-hmm. once you get past Superman and Batman, though, you get into you know, some kind of sketchy territory. Who gets what? But <laughs> there you go. And he goes. Once I got through the big heroes, yes, Aquaman got his own section. No Firestorm did not. I went by the teams. You know what? I'm done with Mike. Forget I love, it. I love that guy. You're out, buddy. Okay. He says Impact got its own binder, but I don't really care. Whatever, Mike. <laughs> You lost me at no firestorm. David Ace Gutierrez, executive producer of Pod Dylan, says, How I organize my loose leaf who's who's alphabet category, hero, villain, tech. Kept it there simple. There you go. Uh, and we're from Sean Walsh. He says, uh, In a binder, he, or, the way he organized his was in a binder, issue by issue, in the order they came in. Look at that. Someone kept them in the order they came in, so he's not going to have any problem with this podcast. He goes, that's the vanilla answer. The vanilla with sprinkles answer is before I bought Who's Who, I was collecting the Marvel handbooks. And when I scooped up all those loose leaf editions, I made a point to organize everyone by first name only. I also discarded the cover pages of the Marvel ones. About a year later, I wondered if I had every issue. That was 15 years ago. I still don't know if I do. So when it came to Who's Who, I played it safe but wise, but safe. (laughs) 
<laughs> way, I don't know why uh, that made me laugh so much. It's just, it's just the way you're safe, but lies, but safe. <laughs> I love that. Uh, by the way, the, the Marvel one, just so there's no confusion, the Marvel Masterworks version, whatever they called it, was which was Loose Leaf, which is vastly inferior to the version of Ohatmu that Cisco is covering with the ladies. Uh, that came after Who's Who. Who's Who, Who's Who was the first Leaf, Loose Leaf one. Marvel came later. All right. Um, you, know, you know what I didn't even mention, by the way, at this point, and I should, is that not only did we get 16 issues of Who's Who and two updates, Mayfair Games also published a supplemental version of this where, like, we have the Superman answer we covered today. Mayfair would have a page you would put in right next to it that was Superman's stats, the game stats, his powers, the numbers, all the, the stats for the, the Mayfair Games heroes' powers. And it had, like, subplots and how your personality of the character had every appearance the character had made ever which was like the greatest index of all time before there was an internet. You want to know every single appearance Superman ever made? It was there. Uh, I used to use that as my Firestorm and Aquaman guide so I could pick up every single issue of those characters. And like Even if the character was in the background in a single color and didn't speak it, in one panel, it was still in this guide. It was absolutely wow. phenomenal. We're, we're going to talk more about that a lot later, so I, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We're going to do either an episode or a segment on it. I'll bring Siskoid in. We'll talk about it because I know Rob couldn't care less. Um, not only is it loose leaf edition, it's, it's freaking role-playing, so it makes it even worse. <laughs> but um, anyway, all right. Then we heard from our buddy Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks, from the Waiting for Doom podcast, also now on the DC OCD podcast, which is all about DC events. Pretty cool. He says, I bought the Perez binder when the series started. Then a second Perez binder when the series overwhelmed the binder. Then I bought the Boland binder, the, the Boland binder when it finally came out, giving me the spare Perez binder, which I now use for the DC trading cards and the nine leaves floaters, um, nine loader sleeves. He says, I sorted my who's who in a good old plain alphabetic order with Green Arrow being the last entry in binder one. Oh, the exception was all the Doom Patrol entries that I kept out for an eventual discussion on Waiting for Doom, the exceptional Doom Patrol podcast. Now, Paul did something wonderful here. Paul helped me out and reminded me of something I have been trying to figure out for a while now. He says that he went back and he's ready to organize all his and issue numbers so he can do the podcast, but he says it took him forever because of the character Sudden Death. Because Sudden Death was omitted from the cover list of issue number 11. Oops. So it drove him crazy trying to figure out where Sudden Death fit in. And I knew that there was a character who got missed on the cover, and I had no idea who it was. And I was like, oh my god, there's 16 issues, or you know, 18 issues of this thing, how am I going to figure out who this character is, blah, blah, blah. And Thankfully, Paul has answered that for me. So, folks, write in, by the way, if there's anyone else that we need to know about. Like, Sudden Death is not on the cover, but he's in issue 11. Uh, I know there were two Dark Side ent- – I'm sorry, Desaad entries because the logo was so blacked out. They put another one, version of it in a later edition with white letters. W- was there any other weird quirks that we need to know about going in? Because we're – I'm pulling these out of my binders and having to recreate the issue in order to do it. So any help would be appreciated. There is a mistake regarding one of the classifications, which, again, led to that letter that I will mention when we get to okay. it. Arlene Lowe, I can tell you, it's not looking good if you're trying to take... <laughs> he, wait, Arlene did a really good job on issue number one. You cannot I take know. that away from that. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, okay, we got a comment from our pal Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Commentary, and is also, of course, part of the Legion of Superbloggers. His recent comment, as for Loose Leaf, I still have Volume 1, but lost Volume 2 in a patient. So I can follow along for anything A to L, <laughs> but for M to Z, I am SOL. <laughs> I love all the euphemisms here, uh, acronyms. I simply alphabetize my binders for ease of finding. Although I have to say some of the entries are wonky, if I recall. Are the Legion ones under their real names? Because in 5YL, there were no code names. Is Lightning Lass under Ayla Rands? 
Well, then that's difficult to figure out. Now, I have contacted Ange and it sort of helped him to be able to seal the entries for the podcast so he can comment. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, his heart is broken because his second binder got thrown away. So, so sad. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Chris Franklin, who's drinking moonshine. Uh, he's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, including the JLU cast and the Superma- Supermates Podcast, which, by the way, you can buy a T-shirt now with the Supermates Podcast. You should check that out on our website under the Merch tab. And Chris, uh, he, he's, he's commented a few times now about how he organizes binders, but here's the most recent one. Because I had both official binders. I used the Perez binder to house the entries of the main DC heroes that had their own titles, like Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, etc. I would put every related entry behind that character in order of importance. The heroes and allies would come first, like Lois and Jimmy, then the villains like Luther and Brainiac. I put the characters with one or just a few entries in alphabetical order behind the big guns, like Adam Strange and Animal Man and such. And after the heroes, they went to the free-floating villains that didn't really belong to one specific series. I used the Bolin, uh, Brian Bolin binder for teams and included characters who belonged to that team but didn't have their own series behind the main team page. So Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, March Manhunter went to JLA, Starfire and Cyborg went to Titans. I cheated a bit and threw some of the weird supernatural characters, mostly Vertigo, that weren't part of the series or weren't really a hero or villain at the back of the book. And uh, I had one more binder I used. I found a small black plastic binder with the 1989 Batman movie bat symbol on it, the metallic one used in the movie poster. And I put all the Batman-related entries in this binder. Hey, I'm a Batman guy. Uh, plus, I found there was almost too many entries for two binders to close properly. In each binder, I taped uh, – t- I'm sorry. I taped a typed table of contents so I could quickly reference who went where. As storylines progressed and as characters and teams changed, I did shuffle things around but never went back and retyped the table of contents so the binders don't quite match up anymore. He says, I had a lot of fun organizing these, and in a way, it was like a paper version of my setting up an action figure display. I always have to group characters in a fashion that makes sense to me, and I did the same here. Me at perhaps my most nerdiest. We'll have to find out from Cindy whether that's true or not, but... but <laughs> Chris, don't, don't feel bad at all. This, again, this is such the fun of the Who's Who uh, Loose Leaf Edition is doing this. And when we get to the end here, I'll tell you guys how my binders are organized. Uh, it's, it's absolutely a blast. Herb, our buddy Joe X, who says, I also pulled out uh, the Legion entries, as well as the Earth 2-related ones. Beyond that, it was an alphabetical order by color code, I think. I haven't looked at them in over 20 years. Well, Joe, I hope you busted them out for this show. Shag, did you notice that that comment was yellow highlighted? That means oh, Rob. Oh, yes, that was, that was for Rob to read, or for, to- for Tob to read. I'm sorry about that, Tob. <laughs> would you like to read Mark Baker Wright's uh, entries in exchange? <laughs> no. <laughs> Fine. Our friend, buddy Mark Baker Wright, who, by the way, this time next week I'll be hanging out with uh, from Black Rock's Toy Box. He says, I've only got a couple of the loose leaf issues. They are organized alphabetically with the covers uh, retained at the end. They heard from our buddy Siskoid from the Firewater Podcast Network, including the First Strike Invasion Podcast, which you can also buy a T-shirt now for over on our site. Go to the merch tab. Check it out. Hashtag never forget. That's right. He wrote in the, the original binder had all the heroes with the red stripes in alphabetical order except for the Doom Patrol and Legion and uh, uh, the Acronym Legion. And the second binder had all the villains with the black stripes in alphabetical order except for Doom Patrol Legion and Acronym Legion. Uh, now in binders I had uh, now in binders I had to buy just plain monochromatic ones. He had the mystical characters with the purple stripe with the Doom Patrol and possibly other vertical characters thrown in. He had the Legion and the Acronym Legion entries uh, with heroes, villains, supporting cast. The supporting cast, places, and equipment, and all the Entries are coupled with their DC Heroes RPG page when possible. You hear that, Rob? The Mayfair Games additional supplement. And the update pages are ordered with the original run as if it's all part of the same. Nice. Very cool. So, obviously, uh, to him, Doom Patrol and Legion were very important, and he busted them out individually. Very cool. All right. 
Comment from DC Dave. He says, I organized my loose leaf by issue. I couldn't bring myself to take the pages out and sort it. I'm <laughs> picturing DC Dave like weeping at the whole notion of it and stuff. He just can't bring himself to do it. You got to peel off that rubbery thing at the end. I, I don't know. I'd feel a little awkward too. I'd, I'd, it would be bothered me. He's holding the book. He's holding like the uh, the the thin piece of glue over, uh, prostrate over his arms, like Superman holding Supergirl's body on Crisis Seven. He's just weeping <laughs> uncontrollably. Uh, <laughs> Martin, can we, can we call, instead of calling him DC Dave, can we call him OCD Dave? That'd be nice. <laughs> Martin, Sorry, Dave. We're just having fun. Martin Gray from two from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog and a recent guest on my Film and Water podcast. Thank you so much, Martin. He says, "I can't remember how I organized the spells organized with an S. The loose leaf, uh, loose leaf huzu. I think I stuck them in the files." alphabetically rather than by group or concept or whatever. That way you have just one system to look through rather than multiple groupings. All right. Then uh, Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network wrote us a dissertation on how he organizes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and blow through this as quick as I can, so strap in, folks. All right. In his Perez binder, he had the male heroes, which were alphabetized by first name, beginning with Adam Strange and ending with Wildebeest. Also included were characters I felt were miscategorized, like <laughs> Dead Man, Kid Eternity, and Spectre. That's probably the supernatural thing you were talking about. He also had positive female characters, like heroes, supernatural supporting cast, beginning with Amanda Waller and ending with Zatanna. And the holes had to be reinforced by tape due to wear and tear from being in the back of the old binders. Also, were positive groups of two or more with regard for D- with uh, without regard for DC categorization, beginning with Angel and the Ape and ending with the Time Masters. Oof. Then in the Brian Ballen binder, he had the male villains that he felt uh, plus the miscategorized ones, characters like Lobo and Wotan, beginning with Abracadabra and ending with Yuga Khan. He had negative female characters, regardless of the DC categorization, uh, such as the hero label for Lady Shiva, uh, beginning with Blackfire and ending with Velvet Tiger. Oh, my goodness. And he had the villain teams, organizations, things like that, beginning with Brother Adada and ending with Untouchables. Then he had a separate black. He had two separate black binders, which included the male and female supporting cast, who I did not regard as belonging to the hero sections, beginning with Alfred Pennyworth and ending with Warner Woman supporting cast. Then progressing into the related Mayfair RPG supplement pages. You hear that, Rob? I'm going to keep needling you. Uh, the aliens and supplements, <laughs> the geography and RPG supplements, technology and RPG supplements, positive female. Okay, they just keeps going, guys. Um, <laughs> The other binder, he's got like his Vertigo characters. This one blows me away. Mixed Vertigo characters, regardless of gender or category, beginning with Abigail Arcane and ending with Yankee Doodle Dandy? What? How is that Vertigo? Like, I know there was a gag, an April Fool's Day joke, where they were going to do a Vertigo uh, series about Captain Kara, but it wasn't real. I I don't know where Frank's going with that. Huh. Anyway. He also mentions Impact Comics softcover binder, numbers one and three, and a publisher assigned page order because IG... I-J-D-G-A-F. I think you all know what that stands for. So, uh, I, I don't know. During during that whole dissertation, I'm not the only one, I think, that pictured the gif of Charlie Day from It's Only Sunny in Philadelphia with his whole, like, a conspiracy theory thing. <laughs> like, all this stuff on a dartboard with pins and all these circles. He's, he's, it's, all, it's all coming together. The Illuminati, everything. And all's boiling down with who's who. It's like uh, the question in Jeff's Justice League Unlimited. Exactly. Uh, Clark Edwards wrote in to say, on the subject of the loose leaf edition, I have my binders alphabetized by the color-coded subjects and then alphabetically, of course. Whoever doesn't do it this way is just an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I love it, Clark. Thank you. Then we heard from Chuck Rodriguez. He says, I only had the first binder. I didn't even know there was a second one existed until years later, and it was filled with heroes and villains. I was simple and just organized them by categories they were already in. I used a separate binder for all the other entries. Very easy, straightforward. 
Or from Jeff Tischer, uh, he says, I never got the official loose leaf binders. I have all of my issues in individual page protectors. Now, this we read this in the last feedback, issue, feedback episode. He was the one who told us he got for Christmas or his birthday, he got like a packet of page protectors. He was like so excited. I love that story. Anyway, he goes, uh, I had them there all in page protectors, sorted alphabetically by classic who's who style. Alfred is under A, inside two huge black binders. However, I rearranged them so often as a kid. I Sometimes they were by classification. Once I had them organized by first appearance, and I like to pull the Legion characters out a lot. But for the most part, it was just in general alphabetical order. Awesome! I love it! Okay, so here it is, Rob. Here is how my Who's Who binders are organized. They, they've been organized this way since the day I got them. I don't recall asking, so, but okay. I know. Everyone else got a turn. Uh, in general, they're the, as they said, the vanilla answer would be alphabetical. But uh, I had separate sections broken out, not by classification, but for the Legion of Superhero characters and the Vertigo characters. Because at this point in my collecting, those were the two kind of worlds I cared the most about. was the Vertigo characters and the, uh, the Legion of Superheroes, the 5YL stuff. So now, if you start digging deeper, though, it gets kind of weird. Like, I, I, I looked into this here. Like, if it's a full name, it's like Jimmy Olsen. I had it alphabetized by the O for Olsen because that's like my you – know, I just think people should be – like a phone book. It should be by the last name. Uh, Guy Gardner was by Gardner and things like that. Except when I got to the Legion, which was really crazy, I alphabetized them by their code name even though in the five-year-later era, the code names weren't there. Like we saw today the Cosmic Boy entry. You know, It wasn't Cosmic Boy. It was the Rock Crin entry. It should have been under K for Crin, right? No, I put it under C for Cosmic Boy. So a lot of these entries don't have their name on it, and yet I had to go – uh, Grim, uh, Jim and Lore. Oh, that's Colossal Boy. It's under C. Of course it is. So I'm going to have a hell of a time trying to find all these things. Um, because I am having to pull them all out and assemble them for this show, you know. Um, I also had all the Mayfair pages. So again, it'd be Superman on one page, and the next page would be the Superman RPG stats, which are just absolutely glorious. I have three binders. I have the Prez binder. I have the Brian Ballen binder. And I used to just have a generic binder, but a couple years ago, someone traded me. I now have the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name. Style Guide Binder. It is this giant, thick one, and that is my third binder for Who's Who, and it is absolutely glorious. So I love the way my Who's Who are organized. Oh, so good. All right, so, Rob, we've already told the folks at home where to find some entries. Why don't you tell them one more time? It's funny that you didn't ask me how I organized my binders. Oh, I didn't think you cared enough to do it. I figured you just read them and threw them in the trash. How did you organize your binders? I didn't. I actually didn't have the binders. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> no, I, I did buy the entire Who's Who series, but I, and I think I did organize. I think I just had like a regular binder though. I don't think I did anything special. Alphabetical so. or? Alphabetical. Cat? Alphabetical. Totally. You didn't pull the Aquaman characters out and put them separate? No, 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 no. I, I looked at Who's Who as functional. You know, it's like I wanted yeah. to look something up. So that's what, that's how I did it. But okay. anyway, um, anyway, you can find... <laughs> Anyway, you can find uh, the show, of course, on our website, firewaterpodcast.com, and we'll be talking about it over on Twitter. We don't have a Who's Who Twitter feed, but, God, we should start one, considering how No, no, you have too many Twitter feeds. Well, I'm just saying, the Who's Who's very popular. We created one for Digest Cast, for Pete's sakes. We should have one for... We we didn't. I woke up one day, and there was one. All right, anyway, okay. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, anyway, we'll, you can, we'll talk about it over on the network Twitter uh, handle, which is FW Podcasts. And go out to our website and leave the comments there because a lot of you didn't tell us how your binders are organized. I imagine we're going to be dealing, we're going to be getting comments throughout this entire eighteen issue run of people like, oh, and you know, Billy hasn't told us how he organizes his binders, and I love it. I want to hear it, folks. I want to hear your also your or if you have any cool origin stories or anything interesting about the way you organize your binders or with your entries. You know, Tom Paineris takes his entries around to conventions, get them signed by celebrity, you know, by artists, which is brilliant. That's a great way to get autographs. Let us know. I want to hear it. So, um, I guess with that, that's going to do it. So. Uh, only one thing left to say, Rob. 
Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hedrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Hi, Jeffrey. How'd you find me? Easy. I just followed your notes. Guess I'm a loose leaf loser, huh? You need a me trapper keeper. It comes with trapper folders that trap papers in so they don't fall out. I've got a trapper for every subject, and the trapper keeper holds them all. Neat. Really neat, with this Velcro closure and this tough Duracell construction. The Trapper and Trapper Keeper from Mead. Whoa. Think Mead makes a locker-sized trapper keeper? <laughs>